But what you had was a belligerent occupation by the British to deny the Palestinians their right to self-determination for the purpose of facilitating the Zionist project to reconstitute Palestine into a demographically Jewish state. You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Yes, Rachel, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky, and if love remains, and I am its messenger, Mike Levitt, the blind, the blind rabbi Micah, calling for the four horsemen of the WWW to reveal that thinning veneer of the death cult that we call the state, and we're so glad that we can that you can join us on this journey. If 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 I was Richard Branson, I'd talk about this light that's hitting, that is beaming on us like you know, like the sun, like a spiritual sun that is, you know, awaking us with just a touch of Marxism, Richard, you know, you've got a touch of Marxism in there, but that's, that's all right. We love you anyway. Um, I am very, very excited to, to have a, a returning guest, Jeremy R. Hammond. You can find him at jeremyrhammond.com. His website's phenomenal. Excellent information. He's a, um, he's a journalist. He's, he's what we, what we quaintly call a journalist, but but he does what actual journalists are supposed to do, which is he exposes state propaganda um, that is serving to manufacture consent for criminal government policies. If only there were more of you, Jeremy. But I'm glad you. I'm glad that you've got a, a market there for for that kind of content. Welcome back to the show, man. Thanks for having me on again. Great to see you again. Absolutely. Hey, by the way, and and um, I got this wrong, so I'm gonna get it right. Your latest book is that the the War on Informed Consent? Is that the latest book that you that you have put out? Uh, yeah, the latest uh, book that's in print. <laughs> it's in print. I have a number okay. of eBooks. You know, I, I create these eBooks that I give away with my you know to subscribers of my yeah. newsletter. Um, but yeah, the the, the latest uh, real book, so to speak, <laughs> is is the War on Informed Consent. Fantastic, and and you know, and although we're gonna we're gonna delve into the the um, Israel Palestinian conflict, and you've done a lot of just tremendous work on that. I know that's been a, a focus of your study for a long time. You have incredible articles on on um, you know the the the, the COVID uh, propaganda and the things that we went through during the COVID things, and and all kinds of kind of liberty things. I think liberty minded people would be very interested in. So again, I just I highly recommend go to Jeremy R hammond.com and uh, and check out the, his info there um jeremy I, you know i had you on uh before and and because i discovered you uh doing a debate on the tom woods show about a month or so ago and it was and just a wonderful debate and i really appreciated how you conducted yourself and how you presented your information um and and i learned a lot from it um but I, when you, so we kind of jumped right in last time, but I, I didn't kind of get a, your, your origin story. And I'm, I'm curious about how you, how you got into doing what you do, you know, what made you want to become a journalist and, and kind of take me through kind of your process on, on of, of writing and, and what you, you know, how, how you came to do it. Yeah. Well, it was really the events of 9 11 that <clears throat> kind of triggered my, um, 
desire to, to kind of just learn more and educate myself more because um, I had, I happened to have, bought, you know, I had graduated from college, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I had a, I have a degree in film and video a communications degree, <clears throat> but you know, I didn't, didn't really want to move to New York or LA to get involved in the film industry or anything like that. I'm a small town guy. I grew up in the woods. I, I just, it just wasn't what I want. I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I'm like, why did I just spend all this time like getting this BS degree? Um, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I ended up, um, I had a friend who had, had been to Taiwan and he kind of encouraged me. He said, I'm going back in the fall. Why don't you come with me? We'll, we'll go and we'll teach English for a while and, you know, figure things out. So that, I, that was what I planned on doing. Um, I had bought my plane ticket um, like two weeks before 9-11 and then arrived in, in, uh, arrived in Taiwan shortly after the event. Um, and it just was asking myself the question, you know, the naive question, like, why would people do this? And just being dissatisfied with Bush's answer uh, that, you know, that they hate our freedoms. And, and that didn't make any sense to me. So I started researching and I, you know, it was just kind of like naive and not knowing the answer already. Um, but uh, now, now you know, did you grow up political at all or did you grow up kind of looking out at the world and 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 listening to the hosts and, and uh, did you grow up in that or, or was this kind of need for you not particularly I would you know I would, I would describe my knowledge of world events and history and, and current events and things as, as probably considerably above average in terms of, of you know the population <laughs> um, but you know, it wasn't a particular focus of mine or anything like that it was just um, it was really a, a kind of a, a I, I kind of was just unaware of, of a lot of government um, interventions overseas and just the, the history of interventions, um, particularly what the U.S. was doing in the Middle East. And so that really became an intense focus of mine, um, you know, researching the events of 9-11 first um, and then coming to realize how we'd been lied to about the events of that day, um, which we could discuss if you'd like. And then that kind of... It, with, by the end of 2002, it became clear to me that they were using nine, the events of 9-11 as a pretext to invade Iraq. And so I started just like sending emails home to friends and family. I was in Taiwan there again at that time. Um, and I was just there. I, I taught English f for a while there. And I was teaching English at the time. And I, I was sending like emails home of information about how the government was lying. Right. To try to, to lying about Iraq, having weapons of mass destruction. Uh, WMD operative ties Al Qaeda. Yeah. Uh, so they had the, all these lies that they were creating this pretext to to launch a, a war, an illegal war of aggression for the purpose of regime change, which had been pre-planned. I mean, the, the regime change um, had been an idea of the neocons long predating the the events of 9/11. Um, and it was kind of a, a really educational experience for me in the sense that like nobody wanted to hear the information I was sending them. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you. So, cause it, 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 to me, it's fascinating that, that, that took place while you're in Taiwan. And I'm, and I'm curious, like how much of an influence that was as far as like being able to get true information, you know, we, we were so uh, propagandized here and I remember it so clearly, um, you know, the, about what was going on. It was very difficult to have a dissident voice here in, in America. So tell me what, what was that experience like for you to yeah. get information and, and, and try to get to the bottom of things? Yeah. Well, I think that was a big factor is just, you know, like I was kind of outside of the, the U S propaganda system. I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting my news or information anymore from watching the TV news in the evenings. Um, you know, I was, I really discovered the internet for the first time where I was like really made use of it. And, um, and just, 
research and, and getting my information from a huge variety of sources. Right. You know, Not just bad drugs. maybe a handful of like US media companies. It's like, you know, I'm getting my information from from Al Jazeera, from Israeli Haaretz, from the Jerusalem Post, from the BBC, from Russian, you know, uh, Russian newspapers, you know, English speaking ones or, you know, just yeah. like e- English language newspapers from all over the world and just getting such a huge variety of, of sources. And so just not limiting, um, you know, my, my, from the source of my information to like U.S. Uh, media corporations. So that, that, that by itself was just a huge factor. Um, and then you had all kinds of great content, content aggregators back then, you know, well, which still are actually around today. Tom Feely's Information Clearinghouse, you know, would go to, I would go there or um, um, what really happened uh, dot com was another one where, you know, you, you had these guys just kind of like, I don't know how they managed to consume so much information in a day, but they would like compile all these just like dozens and dozens of, of great articles on really important information that you just were not getting anywhere else uh, from the mainstream media. And, and you could go there and just kind of get information that you wouldn't get elsewhere. Um, from each is a huge variety of sources. So there, there was those types of informational sites um, that I, where I was getting from information from and, and, you know, and just you know, like Scott Ritter, former weapons inspector, um, you can go, you could go on. And I managed to find online there where you could go read reports from the UN weapons inspectors during the nineties. And it was this type of information that I was sending home and showing like, look, here's what the weapons inspectors were saying. Here's what the U.S. government is saying. Now you try to reconcile those two things and, and tell me how it isn't the, the case that the U.S. government is brazenly, blatantly lying. They're brazenly lying. And we know that. We know that. And so it wasn't like it. But, you know, I got called a conspiracy theorist. I was anti-American. You know, I, I, uh, I was I was pro-Saddam. For yeah. not like getting behind this war effort. And it was really shocking to me that that I was just presenting like factual information, clearly showing that number one, they had no evidence. I mean, you could look at the, the evidence that they claimed, but you could show how that evidence was just they were like the aluminum tubes, which they said were supposed to be for uranium enrichment enrichment centrifuges. Yeah, but you, but you could go and 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 see these experts commenting, uh, um, you know, experts in like centrifuges and how they're saying like, well, you couldn't even use these tubes for that purpose. They're not built for that. They're, they're, they're for our launch. They're for making artillery to launch rockets. They're those type of tubes they are not for centrifuges and you couldn't even use them for that purpose without extensive retooling. And, and so you had, you know, you had like these experts commenting on these types of things, but they were, you know, like the, the, the real experts were just being completely sidelined and ignored in favor of this propaganda narrative that Saddam Hussein is trying to enrich, uh, build these tubes to uh, to enrich uranium, to weapons mm-hmm. grade, so it can acquire nuclear weapons. It's got nuclear weapons programs. It's got active um, uh, chemical and biological warfare programs. None of this was true, and and they had no no real evidence for any of it. And all the evidence was concocted, and you could demonstrably show that they were concocting the evidence. And so you know. Long before, you know, like months and months, again, this goes back to 2002. Yeah. You know, the war started in March 2020, uh, 2003. And so I was saying there were no, there was no evidence of weapons of mass destruction back, you know, well before the war, well before, because of course there was this propaganda narrative that shifted after the war. Of course, they invaded and they found no weapons of mass destruction. And even the CIA had to finally admit that, yeah, uh, it looks like 
everything really was the, the, the weapons program was did end in 1991 when the UN basically finished um, destroying any remaining stockpiles of, of, of chemical and bio, biological weapons, which Saddam did used to have, but that was during the 80s when the U.S. was supporting him and providing him with the uh, with the means to get the, the means <laughs> to, to be able to create those, those weapons. Um, it, it, you know, like you know when they said that you know Saddam gassed his own people. Well, that was in 1988 when the U.S. was supporting him. <laughs> right, right. It's um. Oh man, it, I I think oh it, it's you know I I think of the parallelism of of the even the Israeli conflict today where you know it, where the Israel's like yeah we know there's tunnels there because we built them and it's the same thing like yeah we know they had they had chemical weapons because we gave it to him, you know? Yeah, the U.S. provided precursors for, for Saddam's chemical and biological weapons. Um, and so so by that time, you know, by the time that they rolled around to this propaganda campaign, it was a campaign of of, um, of deliberate disinformation. And then they, they had to cover that up after they finally admitted, the government had to admit that, yeah, well, we were, we were wrong. There were no weapons of mass destruction. So they invented this, this, a new propaganda narrative to whitewash the original propaganda narrative. And they, and they call it an intelligence failure. Right. So this is again, a myth. There was no intelligence failure. There was a deliberate campaign of disinformation. Um, and it was within the U S intelligence establishment where the, the intelligence establishment would sideline its own, you know, like its own experts. Like you had experts from the, um, um, you know, the, the Department of Energy, who are the experts right. in, in nuclear energy and centrifuges and all that. And they would be saying, no, you can't use these tubes. for the, the, These tubes are not for that purpose. And, you know, s- central intelligence would, would basically ignore the analysis of the top experts in the country and centrifuges in favor of um, pipelining into the White House, you know, information from a single analyst named Joe, who who put together this whole case for why there were centrifuges. It was a bunch of nonsense. And so this, you can see how, because of course, um, you know, it, it's it's a simple logical you know, a truism that if you're going to feed the White House information it wants, that's going to be good for your career. Yeah. Whereas if you feed the White House information it doesn't want to see that, that's probably not going to be very good for your career. And so you have this kind of incentive within the community to create propaganda. And it's the same, it's the same with it's the same with the the health freedom uh, issue and yep. science and people wonder, well, how can it be that the entire medical establishment can be wrong? Well, because you look at the science and how corrupt it is. That's right. And and where does the funding yeah. come from? And when you, you it's, it's simple, like scientists who will produce conclusions and study findings that, that the CDC wants and the FDA wants and the US government wants, and the, which, which of course they all work for the pharmaceutical companies. So if you, if you produce results that that entire establishment once you're going to probably have a pretty good career but if you produce results that are contrary to public policy well guess what that's not really good, very good for your career it's the same within the intelligence community and this is what happened um and so you had this now, I, kind a question of, though uh, yeah. just because because uh i mean maybe you're getting here but but my one of the things that that um i guess i that i wonder about is like motivation like like what was the why why Saddam why then 
Why was that important? I've heard everything from because he was going off the dollar standard to, um, you know, we had to, you know, we, we, um, you know, we were doing it for Israel, another kind of one of those uh, tropes, which, which may or may not, I don't, just don't know the motivation of why Saddam, why then? Yeah, I think those are all factors. I mean, you had um, uh, the U.S. U.S. dollar hegemony is is a major factor, um, and the sale of the petrodollar system, where the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency, um, and largely propped up through oil sales in, in dollars. And Iraq was threatening that system, um, selling oil and non-dollar uh, currencies which is a, a sin Iran had committed as well <laughs> down the road. Um, so that was one factor um, where, you know, it was just Saddam. And then you can go back and read the, the policy documents, like from the Project for a New American Century, the PNAC, uh, the neocon think tank, and um, where they talk openly and that, about- And by the way, almost- that's, that's the other thing that, that's the other thing that I, that I'd forgotten about is the, the idea of how do we keep, now that the Soviet Union's gone, how do we keep America- as this, um, you know, monolithic empire for right. as long as we can for the next century or two. Right. Yes. Yes. It was really all, it was very about, very much about empire. Um, and, and that's, and so they needed some kind of external threat. Um, and, and which is of course where nine 11 came in and in the pretext of, you know, we have this, this war on terrorism that we have to fight and Iraq became part of that. Um, because like you said, yeah, with, with the collapse of this, the Soviet union, we needed a, a new enemy. I mean, it's very much like Orwell, Orwell's 1984. <laughs> you know, who, oh, who are I'm we fighting you, today? You, you can, you can, you can draw a line. I mean, I think you can draw a line, and you don't have to be too creative in doing that. From the fall of the Soviet Union to 9/11 to the war on terror um, to a bunch of small to COVID, proxy, or, to COVID <laughs> right? To COVID to Ukraine to Israel. Like, you, it, it doesn't take. You don't have to find have a, a a maze to get through that that um, that line of thinking there, uh, and and it it's 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 honestly quite frustrating. <laughs> you know, this is this is why people like like Assange is still in jail, and and it's absolutely criminal. And, and and this is you know, if there's one reason why nobody should ever vote for Donald Trump or or anybody like, is because he did not free Julian Assange. It's that is a absolute, um, yeah, that dude's a hero, man. And it's, it's, it's impossible to say like, and, and, and this is why I appreciate what you're doing because, you know, you haven't, you didn't build the infrastructure that, that Assange did, but you're doing that same kind of work of trying to expose the truth of, of what's happening. And, 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 um, and man, it, it, it needs yeah, to happen more. The persecution of Julian Assange has tremendous implications for the practice of journalism. For sure. Um, because that's what he was doing. He was doing journalism. Um, but, you know, really, of, a, of a unique quality and, and, and type. Um, but that, I mean, he was exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq, for instance. And, and for that, he, that, he's just been relentlessly persecuted by the U.S. government. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just horrific. Um, yeah, certainly. What um now where where do you fall to go back to nine eleven where do you fall on um the from the research that you've done you know um was it a a pre planned 
you know, you know, drone planes from the military that 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 knocked those towers down, all the way to um, it was a a useful terrorist action that we used. Um, you know, that we were waiting for something like this to happen to use as a pretext to go to war. Where do you fall kind of in that that line? Well, let's start with what's uncontroversial. They had okay. foreknowledge. Yeah. Um, they lied about that. They they said that they had no idea that something like this could happen. Well, just the previous month in August of 2001, um, Bush had a, a, a brief from, from the CIA saying, <laughs> you know, that Osama bin Laden determined to attack the U.S. And of course, of course, the obvious target was the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center had already been attacked. What was it? Nin- nin- it was, I think it was 1993. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, in that attack, the FBI had an informant in the cell. Um, and, and they had a plan to replace the, the, the bomb. They were going to try to create a, a dud by replacing some of the ingredients in, in, in the workings of, of the bomb that they were, were building. Um, and for whatever reason, and the informant came out and there's a recording of, there was a recording of him saying this and admitting how, how the FBI had pulled him off of that and said, no, allow them to proceed with the operation. So there's a curiosity. And by, you know, a lot of this stuff was like reported in like the New York Times and you can read about the stuff and like, this isn't like conspiracy theory stuff. It's like ma- mainstream type news, but then it just kind of, it, it, it gets tossed down the memory hole. Right. 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 Um, which I learned very early on, like when I read important articles, like to save them because <laughs> <laughs> get hard to piss them out. Stuff would disappear. Like stuff would literally disappear from the internet wow. back then. And now, now it's easier to, to access um, stuff, but you know, you have internet archive and, and different tools like that. But I remember back then, like I would like start saving articles cause I would notice them start disappearing. Um, but anyhow, yeah. Um, so th- it's uncontroversial that, that they had, they had foreknowledge of the attacks and they, they knew that it was uh, an operation in the planning. The CIA was tracking, um, what is it? I, uh, I forget their names, El Madar and the other guy, um, in, in Asia, yeah, um, um, who had gone to, uh, they, they were tracking two of the terrorists and they deliberately allowed them into the U S they deliberately allowed them into the U S and then they didn't notify state department, immigration, F- FBI, like they should have. They went, they, they, and then they moved into an apartment with an FBI informant. Like they were literally living in the, in, in the apartment of uh, renting from an FBI informant. Um, I mean, this, this sounds like the, like the, the governor of Michigan's, you know, pretty close, you know, other than they, it sounds like the FBI had more willing participants for nine 11. Yeah. And it, there's, there was, um, I don't know if you recall this information, like the Israeli spy ring that was uncovered in the U S where it appeared that they were monitoring some of the, the, the terrorists. I'm um, tracking their movements. Wow. Um, a lot of people took that, took a logical leap and, and then concluded that Israel was involved. I, I don't, the evidence doesn't go that far. The evidence did indicate that the, the point is that intelligence knew about the, the plot. They knew about it. Israeli intelligence seemed to know. Uh, in fact, I think Israeli intelligence warned the, the, the U.S. intelligence. Um, there was clear foreknowledge. You had um, foreknowledge. People, offices in the towers. Um, um, it, the Israeli, um, there was a, a Israeli communications company that, that was warned to get out. Um so and is that where all the is is that kind of thing where all the a lot of rumors came that like 
a, a bunch of Jewish people were not there at work that day and, and had foreknowledge. Is that, is it like you had these companies that were specifically Israeli companies that, that were asked that were warned? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and this tied into was a Fox news report by a guy named Carl Cameron is a four part series that he did on the Israeli spying that got broken up um, in the U S and, and he talks about how, you know, like these Israeli companies were responsible for um, the, all these communication systems in the U.S. that that the intel the U.S. intelligence community relies on, and 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 all the evidence indicating that Israel Israeli intelligence had kind of had its own back door into the U.S. intelligence right. communications network, um, and into the White House, and and they they, talk, they described past incidences of of um, where it was apparent that essentially Israeli intelligence was was monitoring U.S. intelligence. Which this, makes sense. I mean, we mean, all spy on each other. I mean, to me, sure. like that that's obvious that that's going to happen, you know, right. but. but and that, then you that, had the dancing Israelis that there, there were uh, these three, uh, the four or five um, Israeli guys who were seen um, and actually they were arrested. They were, they were filming the, the burning towers and like celebrating. Um you know, like dancing around, like uh, at the site of the towers burning. And I, I think, you know, I think that's been misinterpreted. I, I think that they, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but um, so that you can, you can understand why these kind of like conspiracy theory about Israel being involved, uh, arrive because there's a lot of true information there. But again, to draw that conclusion is, is kind of a leap of logic. I think, yeah, I you're, think, you're saying that, that they knew about it because, because they were, along with the u.s and and if not a joint operation at least a uh, um you know at least they were looking at the operation of of the u.s following these terrorists and seeing what they were doing and and knew that there was a plot now do you think they they knew that i guess they did they they were the ones that warned them so they knew that the, it was against the world trade center that it was going to happen on that day i mean that's pretty remarkable to think about um it's, it's, yeah, it's I, I think they. I think they had. I think that the evidence of foreknowledge is is very broad and deep. Um, so so it's very clear they had foreknowledge. They knew that there was a plot. So then the and question the is, the target they, for that plot would have been the World Trade Center, and they obviously let it happen. So the question is, did they let it? I mean, there's a couple of reasons why you would let something happen. You would let something happen because you don't want to give up your sources, right? Like, so maybe you let small things happen so that you, so you can maintain the integrity of, of your, um, of your spying. Um, you can let things happen um, because um, you're getting more bad guys than good guys. I mean, I can think of about three or four reasons, but one of the reasons why you would let things happen is because it serves your own global purposes. Right. And, and, um, and is that kind of the case that you're making? Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the neo, the neocons were quite open about using 9-11 as a quote-unquote opportunity to push forth their pre-planned agenda um, you know, for global hegemony, including regime change in Iraq. And, um, you know, and they had plans on Syria, Iran, right. and they wanted to transform the Middle East. Um, and this ties Which into- Which Nikki again, Haley is Israel, still trying to do. <laughs> back in the, the, the first Netanyahu- um, government the first time he was in power um you had neocons writing um there was a, a clean break document that they had written for the netanyahu government describing this 
this transformation of the Middle East to serve Israel's interests. And so this this goes you know, into the question: What are the motives? Right. Um, you know, the, the the they were interested. They're all they're all bunch of Zionists, of course. Um, and so they were interested in overthrowing Saddam's regime in Iraq, um, dollar hegemony, serve Israel's interests. Sure. Um, you know, to put put someone in power who's more compliant with U.S. policy, more friendly to the U.S. Um, so, uh, you know, qu- quite a lot of different, you know, obviously oil and, and just the, his production of oil. Um, they wanted to get someone in there who wasn't willing to use oil as a weapon, uh, as a policy tool um, that, you know, to try kind of like to like holding back, withholding supplies and things when when the U.S. didn't appreciate his policies of, of selling oil and, and non-dollar currencies, things like this. Um, so there, there, it was all, it was really about hegemony. It also served, you know, Israel's interests, which was kind of, I don't think that was the main reason. A lot of people think that was the prime, it was fought for Israel, but they were really clear. I mean, you can go back and read their policy documents. They were very clear about having um, what they saw as U.S. interests, of course, narrowly defined by themselves, not by mm-hmm. us. Um, right. Certainly didn't serve our interests. No, the American no, people. I, but in their mind, this they had they had very clear um, what they considered to be U.S. interests that were primary. And I think it, the fact that it served Israel's interests as well, at least in their calculations, I think was secondary. So I don't agree that it was fought for Israel, um, but certainly they made clear themselves how how the overthrow of Saddam would benefit Israel. Okay. Um, and is that is that the, the kind of what led you to doing a deep dive into the the history of Israel and Palestine, or or, or was there another trigger for that? Well, it was really you know again coming back to nine eleven, I was asking myself the question: Why would they do this? And well, S- S- Saddam, I'm sorry, not Saddam, um, Osama bin Laden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he put out that letter, the letter to America that was recently like viral on TikTok or something. Right. Where like this new generation of people, you know, kids these days, like they, they weren't around then. So they didn't know about it. Yeah. But of course, I remember reading that back in 2002 when, when it was first published, um, where he's explaining like this, th- these are our grievances against the United States. You've got your military bases in, in our holy, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia. We don't want you there. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> you know, you've got you've got the 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 history of um, U.S. interventionism, harmful U.S. interventionism throughout the Middle East. Um, and, and a primary grievance was U.S. support for Israel's crimes against the Palestinians. And so, it, I mean, it, I couldn't like not ask myself the question, you know, why would they do this? and not look into U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And if I'm going to do that, you can't not look into U.S. policy in Israel-Palestine conflict. And of course, you know, I had other kind of just background that kind of led me to be interested in Israel-Palestine conflict in particular, just because, I mean, I was raised in a Christian family. So I was brought up as a Christian. I remember going to Sunday school. Um, And when you're brought up in that environment, I mean, you can't, you're always hearing people say things like, you know, we must support Israel no matter what, because, um, you know, among Christians, there really is a very strong um, Christian Zionist movement. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's like, I very think you rare make a to good, find like Christians make, who are anti-Zionist. Yeah, you can make you make. I think you make a pretty good case. I've heard you make that that uh, Christian Zionism is is really uh, predates Jewish Zionism. You know, oh, as a modern as a modern idea. Yeah, it, it predates like like yes, modern political Zionism. Yeah, yeah. 
um, Christian Zionism does. And so, you know, you're, you're always hearing things like that. And so, and obviously, you know, just it's the Holy land, right? <laughs> so if you come up from that background, of course, you, you're already kind of already focused on that. You, you, you hear about these places, you hear about like Bethlehem and, you know, you read about it in the Bible and, and that's all, that's Palestine. Bethlehem's in the West Bank. Um, so you kind of, I already kind of had this, just from my, my background and upbringing, you know, this, this curiosity and interest in the region um, for, for that historical um, purpose. And then once I, I wanted to start doing research into U.S. foreign policy, it just became kind of a natural focus, um, which, you know, I, I kind of emphasize because you always get asked the question, well, why do you focus on Israel? Are you anti-Semitic? You know, they have this stupid, <laughs> like if you criticize Israel, like somehow that right. Israel is unique. So, so if I criticize uh, Biden, does that make me anti-American? Well, that's what I always say, you know, like, <laughs> so, you know, that's like the same thing when I got called anti-American for being against the Iraq war. Or, you know, you get called pro-Hamas if you're against Israel's genocide in Gaza right now. Does that mean like... like You're pro-Hamas. I was pro-Sam. Very conservative Jewish people who don't think, who don't believe in Zionism are now anti-Semitic. Like the the, the logic just doesn't follow. No, because of course it's it's anti-intellectual and it's moral cowardice to level yeah. the accusation. And of course there is real anti-Semitism. But sure. to level that accusation at people who are legitimately criticizing Israel's policies... Um, is just the height of intellectual dishonesty. Um, and so, of course, I've, I've weathered that accusation ever since I first started writing about this topic. Um, and it just, it just, obviously it bothers me, but, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. Like, I'm not going to let that silence me. You know what I mean? Because right. that, that's, it's, it's a tool to try to silence critics. Right. Um, and of course, I don't let that silence me. Um, so the, people can level these accusations. All it's the same. It's the same as like, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer. You're anti-science, right? Because you respect the right to informed consent. It's that yeah. level of anti-intellectualism. And and to me, like again, we talk. I you know I mentioned like a, a, a short line between things. You know, it, to me, it, it's really frustrating when you hear the same people that um, criticized the vaccine plot that criticize the pharmaceutical companies that criticize the Ukraine war have all of a sudden switched on, on Israel. And it is a, it is a religious fervor that, that they, that, that this happens on. And, and, you know, it's very difficult to, um, you know, kind of yank that off of them. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, my audience has shifted a lot over the years when I started out just focused on foreign policy um, if people would assume I was like a left winger or something because I was right. critical of U.S. foreign policy and I would call I would be called a leftist in things. And then when, um, you know, like during covid, people assume you're right wing or something. You must right. support Trump <laughs> if you're like against, you know, I don't know. People have these crazy you're probably, ideas. You're probably homeschooled, Jeremy. Yeah, well, know? we do homeschool as a matter See? of fact. <laughs> I wasn't homeschooled, but right. we homeschool our son precisely because I, I learned. Yeah, I learned how much I was lied to in my yeah. in the in the government education that I got. Um, which is part of the problem, um, sure. but uh, you know it, it's so my, my audience has kind of shifted. In, in um, yeah, I've had quite a flight actually from from my subscriber list, my newsletter. I was going to ask you, like, tell me about that. Like, have you seen like what are you know? You don't have to go into the detail numbers, but kind of give me a sense of 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 the 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 pushback that you've gotten from you know people walking. 
Yeah, it's kind of, I, th- I think now most of the people who just don't want to hear what I have to say have kind of already left my, my mailing list. Um, but when I, when I first shifted, I mean, after, from October 7th and mm-hmm. in the Hamas atrocities in Israel on October 7th till now, I mean, it this I've done nothing but focus on the Israel-Palestine conflict again, um, such as I had in the past. But, you know, for many years, I mean, it, it had been several years, I was really focused entirely on vaccines. And then, of course, the COVID um, lockdown madness with its coerced mass vaccination endgame. Um, and that was the focus, you know, yeah. like Ukraine. I, I in, the, in the past, I would have been you know, very much focused on, on what was going on in Ukraine, but I, I had no bandwidth for it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, because I was so focused on still just fighting the lockdown insanity and and the medical tyranny at home that I just I couldn't pay much attention to it um, as much as I would have liked to have known more about what's going on and, and writing, you know, writing about that. Well, and it is different, you know, you, and, and this kind of proves the, the kind of um, isolationist point that, that a lot of uh, uh, old conservatives or libertarians have of like, you know, we got to take care of ourselves and our families first. Th- those are our priorities. And anything outside of that, you know, we need to we need to leave alone. Yeah. Um, Becoming just, a father. Because we, we don't changed. have the bandwidth. <laughs> yeah. It, well, once I became a father um, and you know, we were having to make choices about for, yeah. for our own son, you know, about vaccines. And so that's I started kind of applying my journalistic skills and research skills that I had gained to that question and, and going into the medical literature for myself. Um, and it was kind of like once I kind of acquired the knowledge and, and I could see that I, I had anticipated there to be a difference between what, what we're told right. and what's in the science. The chasm that I found between what we're told science says and what science actually has to say about it was so broad and deep and just like unbridgeable that I I realized like, okay, I have to speak out about this issue. I have to start writing about this issue. And and in time, I think probably by 2017 or 2018, that's like pretty much all I was writing about anymore. Um, and so that's why it, when, when COVID hit in, in 2020, I, I Oh, I so, okay. It. Hold on. Hold on a second. I, cause I, I think I didn't understand that. So mm-hmm. you're telling me like you were, you were kind of on the vaccine trail of things, you know, when your child was born, which you, you mentioned, you know, that your child's four ish. So if, if, you know, 2017, 2018, you were already talking about like, Hey, we got to watch out for these things. Like this is, this is not good for our bodies. We need to, you know, yeah, and, and now and then COVID hit, so it wasn't the other right. way around. Like for me, no. it was the other way around. No, I was I was I was well prepared to to focus on COVID already because of wow, of, I was already deep into the literature, following the science, learning how to read scientific studies. What a blessing on, on medical issues. Um, so it was just kind of a natural. I I just fell into that immediately because it was just already what, what my I was already in, in focused on health freedom because uh, my son was born in 2012. And it was, a, it was a number of years of, of intense research before I felt mm-hmm. comfortable speaking out about this issue because, of course, I knew as soon as I did, I was placing a target on my back. And so I had to kind of gain the level of, of, of knowledge for me to have the confidence to be able to speak out and express my views publicly um, for obvious reasons. I think sure. that's a huge challenge for anyone. Um, and so I understand when I try to encourage other people to speak out yeah. I understand the hesitancy to do that, because of course you're going to be labeled, but now it's become easier, I think, because, you know, I was an anti-vaxxer before it was cool. Right. And I use that, I use that label. I reject the label. Of course, I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. 
I'm not anti-vaccine. Um, but but um, Merriam-Webster has actually helped make it easier on us because Merriam-Webster actually defines an anti-vaxxer as somebody who who supports the right to informed consent. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess in that sense, by the dictionary okay. definition, I, right. I support the right to informed consent. Yeah. I mean, other parents might, might make different choices. But, but anyhow, yeah, to come back to that question. So, yes, I was already very much deeply... Um, I had deeply researched it, but it was a number of years before I started writing about it. And so when I say around 2017, 2018, I think by 2018, that's pretty much all I was doing was writing about the vaccine issue and how public health policy systematically violates the right to informed consent. And that was my yeah. issue. And, and, and also just my own experience dealing with doctors, dealing with doctors' ignorance, their condescension, their arrogance, yeah. their and lack of knowledge. When you talk about um, public policy, are you specifically talking about like the idea that that uh, pharmaceutical companies can't be sued if something under the auspices of a vaccine? You know, sure. policies like that. Yes, that's part of it. Uh, the, the legal immunity. You know, the, the lack of a free market. Right. And if we had a free market, if we had a free market in healthcare, none of this would even exist. That's right. Um, because yes, the the vaccine industry was essentially saved by government legislation in the mid '80s that granted broad legal immunity to the manufacturers against of against vaccine injury lawsuits. Um, and, and so that, that's a huge part of it. Yes, absolutely. And, and just, 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 you know, the more you understand about how the system works and you have these federal agencies, you know, the FDA, the CDC, and we're, we're, we're taught, we're told that they, they serve public health, but I'm sorry, public health is not their job. Yeah. They're not into public health. They serve the pharmaceutical industry, period. Right. And, and, and this is easy to demonstrate. Ask, simply ask yourself the question. Look at COVID and look at the vaccines. And this is true of any vaccine. But look at what their policy was. was it's a simple question. It's a simple question. Was the CD's policy to provide in people with the information that they needed to make an informed choice about whether to get the COVID vaccines? Or was the CDC, CDC's policy to achieve a high vaccination rate? Obviously, was number it? Two. It's obviously number two. It was two. number two. So yeah. therefore, the CDC yeah. were not interested in public health. They were interested in serving the pharmaceutical industry. It's right. simple. It's basic right. logic. And, and they don't I, serve public health. And I think I think the fallacy that a lot of people could easily fall into is then, well, then what we need to do is we need to set up another organization um, to to you know that that. You know, maybe we get rid of the CDC, but we need to get, we need to have something to help regulate and 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 you know keep these pharmacy companies from from putting out poisons into the world. And the fact is, like that will get captured too, like that, sure. that it will get captured just like just like the CDC. And and the only real answer over the long term is a free market system, yes. a truly free market system yes. that allows for profit and loss and companies to go bad yes. and people to go to jail for fraud. Yes. That's right. Because if you look at all the complaints that people have about how violative these, the industry is, um, it's, well, how, how is it that the, the pharmaceutical industry has such power and influence? It's precisely because they don't operate in a free market. It's precisely right. because they leverage the use of government force. Right. It's the same, it's the same with the central banks. Yep. The Federal Reserve. We need a free market. The Federal Reserve is a government-legislated monopoly on the supply of currency. That's right. 
how 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 central banks could not exist in a free market. Right. What is the purpose? What is the function of a central bank? It's to affect an upward transfer of wealth from we the masses, you know, the poor and the middle class to the 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 top one percent. That's exactly that is the purpose of central banking. That is I had a conversation with somebody just the other day, you know, about you know, we, we talk about the, the, um, what are they called? The, the CD C's, the, the, um, oh, the, the, the Bitcoin for central banks. I can't remember the, the exact term for it, but basically yeah, um, central bank, digital currency. CD, there you go. Yeah. CBDCs. BC. Yeah. And, um, and how they're terrible. And, and, and while I agree they're terrible and you know, that just would, it, 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 it will just, um, accelerate the theft it's really we have that right now i mean that is that is what the dollar is a dollar is a manipulated instrument that that decides who is rich and who is poor um and until we have the ability or take the ability to own our own money it's not going to change and i don't know if the answer is bitcoin or gold or but it's but at some point we have to take control and own our own money um, because that's because otherwise it, it is a, a huge scandal or a huge a huge ring of bosses that that are are you know it's exactly what Occupy Wall Street was was fighting against you know back in in the early two thousands is we are we are the ninety nine percent well yeah and and they yeah. they want to keep you the serfs <laughs> the idea of central planning an economy is yes. so logically ludicrous ludicrous and 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 what people don't understand like there's this like reactionary like people think of free market as like they, they react to that term right like the free market is some kind of evil idea and they don't understand like there is no and then they talk about how wonderful democracy is well there is no more perfect manifestation of democratic principles than the free market. Yeah. When people are engaging in voluntary exchange for mutual benefit, and this ties right into the pricing system and how prices are absolutely essential for allocating, for, for efficiently allocating um, scarce resources toward productive ends as determined by the will of consumers. Yeah, You can't get more, more perfect democracy than that system. The free market yeah. is the perfect democratic system. Um, And people don't get that. And and they think that we require, you know, this handful of people in a room, you know, planning, trying to centrally plan our economy for us. It doesn't work. You know, it it frustrates me, you know, and I, I get it. Like guys, like um, guys who I respect, and I'll tell you why I respect them. Guys like Brett Weinstein. And the reason I respect Brett um, is because he, in my opinion, He's a truth teller. Now, I don't think he understands the full idea, but he sees that like he's willing to change his mind. Let me just say it that he's simply he was wrong. And then he was he was right on on the covid experience, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but whenever he says um, or people of his ilk say and it's always these high academic people say, you know, what we need is a system that blah. What we need is a system that blah. We need to think about an organization that does this. I just, I cringe because I think, wait a sec. No, you're, you're already putting yourself at the top of an arbitrary um, pyramid, a hierarchy that, that, 
doesn't exist, won't work, and will fail every single time, except for it doesn't fail because what it does is it, it provides the power and the and the riches to those that it was intended to serve anyway. Um, and and so you know what what's what's the system? What's the what's the organization that we need? We need individuals and families to make their own best self-interest decision um, to to work together. I mean, that's really what we need, and and nothing more or less than that. Yeah, lo- local autonomy, local decision yeah. making. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, <laughs> someday, Mike, when when humankind becomes <laughs> civilized, they'll look back at our present era and they're going to see us as barbarians. Yeah. And the, the whole institution of statehood, they're going to see as barbaric. Yep. Um, so I look no, forward. It's, it's, it is, it is like f- for the great, the, the most of the atheists out there are part of the largest death cult in history. And that is the nation state. And they're firm believers in the nation state. And they're firm believers in this idea that if we elect the right person, you know, or if we get our guy in power, um, right. You know, or if we or if we uh, topple this regime or that regime, that utopia will come. And it, that's not how it works. Look, look at all the violence in history. Yeah. All the worst horrific mass atrocities in history. <laughs> Is it committed by private corporations? It's states. Right. It's it. The, the state exists. Um, you know, I, I don't like labels. I don't like to call myself a libertarian because that term has a lot of connotations sure. to a lot of different people and people have different interpretations of what that even means. But at, the, at its most basic, um, I, I consider myself a libertarian in as much as I believe in the principle of non-aggression. Yeah. But the, the institution of the state exists. The purpose of the state is to use force to achieve ends. Yeah. So the, the whole concept of statehood violates the non-aggression principle. Um, and this isn't to say that there's, you know, government is bad. Government is right. fine. Biz, private businesses have a form of government. So, you know, households have a form of government. Um, we have rules in our house. We have, you know, right. there's basic laws. Um, you know, you think about Christianity, for example, and, we, you know, there's God's laws. There's the Ten Commandments. And think about it, Cain and Abel, well... Uh, Cain murdered Abel before the Ten Commandments. Does that mean it wasn't murder? Right. So there's custom. There's customary international law. There's That's common right. law. There's concepts of like, no, we all just have this basic universal, these moral concepts that lead logically to conclusions of, well, this is right and this is wrong. Um, and so there's these types of concepts. And, you know, it basically everyone has a right to do whatever they want as long as they don't infringe on the equal rights of others. It's simple. It is. It and so is. that's just the basic principle of liberty. And, and, and if you uh, co- or commit aggression against someone, it could be coercion, fraud, theft, violence, um, any type of, of aggression on someone else. This is wrong. Right. Um, and that that is the purpose of the state is the purpose of state governments, of national governments is to use force to achieve ends. Um, and, and they're not benevolent actors. I mean, we, we, and this is we going back to the, the government education system where we're, we're taught um, to believe in the United States government as this, um, this benevolent force of good in the world, this, this beacon of light for humanity. Right. And we're taught all this, this stuff about how wonderful our government hey, is. We, and this we, is we why pray this to a flag, to, we pray to a flag every day. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I pledge allegiance to the flag. Right. And, and I, I hated having to do that as a kid. It was just, I, 
even as a kid, I just, I hated that, but, um, but it's just, it's that indoctrination. And this goes back to the point I was making earlier about how, when I was trying to provide information about how the, the government was lying to start a war in Iraq and just like the wall that I was confronted with of people, I couldn't get through to them. Right. And, I, and it, that was like really um, troubling to me. And it, t- it took quite a long time for me to kind of understand it and, and comprehend it. Like, why won't they listen? I didn't, I just didn't get it. Um, Cause you know, for me, I just kind of assumed, well, people will be interested in truth and facts. And if they get the facts, they'll change their opinions, but it wasn't like that at all. And mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out. And I finally, it, what it was is that like, this, I just realized like people just, it, it, they couldn't reconcile what I was saying with their belief, yeah, their belief system, their belief that the, the U.S. government is a force of good. And yes, sometimes they may, government makes mistakes, but only out of benevolent intent. And the idea that the government would lie to start a war just didn't fit in their belief system. Right. And, and so if it's proven, it's all, if it, and if it's ever proven, it's not that the government was bad or that the system itself is faulty, but it was that party that was in charge that did it. A and so now we apples. have a, right. So now we can. So now we have a bad guy that we can now, and that's exactly what the power elite want us to do. Is they want us to be, mm-hmm. you know, they all they want us to do is talk about this election for the next year. That is all they want to do. They don't want us to be looking at anything else. They just want us to be fighting amongst ourselves. Um, and, right. And then and then you start when I started just seeing how the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party were just like two heads of the same mm-hmm. monster. Um, and so there's this kind of false dichotomy and these false arguments, this false opposition that's always created. But then you look at foreign policy and it's like Democrats, Republicans, Democrats, Republicans, and the policies stay the same, yeah. you know, from Bush to Obama. The policies, yep. if anything, Obama expanded on Bush's policies. It didn't end them. It didn't change. The war on terrorism continued. I mean, it was just like, I, I, I don't understand how people cannot see beyond that, that narrow spectrum of like left versus right kind of false dichotomy. Well, it's, um, it's, and, it's, as though that, 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 that's the entire range of like polit- of political opinion is this narrow linear spectrum from left to right, you know, liberal, conservative, Democrat, right. Republican whatever terms you want to use that, that narrow spectrum. I'm sorry. That's not, <laughs> that's not representative of, of political um, viewpoints. There's, no, there's it's a not, huge it, broad range of viewpoints beyond that narrow spectrum. Yeah. And, and, and you brought up the, the free market, you know, the, 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 the beautiful rainbow of colors that, that we have to choose from in every aspect of our life except for the most important ones that the people that are governing us, um, we only have two. And again, those two, as you mentioned, are, are so narrow in scope, like that, that it just, it baffles the mind that, that we can't, that we can't see this thing other than a, a, you know, and I'll, and I'll say it, a devilish cultish, um, satanic ideal, um, of, of utopianism that, 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 that would make any anarchist or libertarian just shudder, <laughs> you know, because it, it, it you, you can't, but, but see the, um, w- once your eyes are open to that, it, it's everywhere. Like it, it's just, it's, it's the waters that we swim in. Yeah. And you're never going to be able to see past the propaganda 
Right. Like if you can't if you can't get beyond the whole like left versus right thing, if you can't see past that, if you still view everything in terms of left versus right politics, like you're just never you're always going to be propagandized and deceived. Yep. You're always going to fall for the lies every time they want to try to justify a war or some crime. Um, if they're going to try to justify tyranny at home with with like the like the lockdowns, the coerced mass right. vaccination based on lies, I mean, people are always going to be duped if they and, can't and the, get, if they can't even get past that. That that, that and the solutions are always the same. That's the thing. The solutions are always the same: more money, more military force, and more governance on us. Yep. C- CDC messed up. Oh, give them more money. Right. That'll fix it. Yeah, it's insane. It's, it's insane. And, and and it's interesting. Like even this conversation has been so interesting to me, Jeremy, because, you know, we started talking about like your history and, and kind of the practical aspects that the actual historical things that brought you into the things that we do. And we've delved in, from there into this whole like kind of theory idea of, of the universe of like what, you know, what, you know, what is a what would a good wholesome and free society actually look like. And, 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 you know, I hate to kind of bring it down, but, but because the, because the consequences are so terrible and so great, and we're seeing it right now, the, let me say this, I, I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. And, and I'm so glad to be on a podcast where we can kind of, you know, um, pull some of these, these ideas out. Um, one of the problems with government in itself as a concept, as an idea, I, I shouldn't say government, as a, the problem with the nation state, with the state, is that it muddies the waters. And I don't think you see that any more obvious than in the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict. Um, because you, what you have is, is anybody who's going to argue um, f- on behalf of the Israelis has to make the claim that there is an outside foreign body that made the decision that certain people were allowed to live in a certain place and other people were not allowed to live in a certain place. Um, and so when you come to like, well, who owned the land and who, who was living there and who was, who had a natural right to that land and all of these kind of like really basic common um, again, common sense, common law kind of ideals just muddy the waters in the, in, 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 um, borders and governance and UNs and empires and all these things just make what is supposed to be a very clear thing. Who does that belong to? Who is using that land? Who is living there? Turns into a whole thing of like, nobody knows anything anymore. And so now we have to get an outside government authority to say, these people live here and these people can't. Um, and I'm wondering like, uh, you know, as we, as we talk about this, like, and, and, and the, the, the United States has kind of been um, the, in, in Palestine at least has, has been um, the grandchild of the Ottomans and the British empire. I mean, they've, they've really taken over um, this, this whole conflict and, and it's left an entire, I mean, now 5 million people, just an utter ruin and utter terror and in absolute horrible conditions. And, and, you know, to say, um, genocide is not too big of a term. And that takes me to, to the, the article that you wrote on December 12th that I was deeply moved by. Can you talk about that article? Talk about 
what's happening there um, and, and just kind of, you know, talk about some of those things. Sure. Um, the, just to quickly tie it into what you were saying about the, the nation state and, and yeah. how there's kind of no, I, 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 you put it better than, than I will, um, but you kind of like the Israel-Palestine conflict is such a perfect illustration of what's wrong with the entire concept. You know, for example, we're told that Israel has a right to exist. This is a nonsensical concept. The, the idea that this arbitrarily some that arbitrarily defined political entities have rights. No, I'm sorry. Individual human beings have rights, and it's not the case. And so, the the, the proper framework for discussion. So let's put things into proper framework for discussion. The proper framework for discussion is not the, the right of this or that state to exist, but the right of all peoples to self determination. You won't find in international law anything about the right of a state to exist because it's a ludicrous concept. Mm -hmm. uh, but you will find, for example, in the UN Charter, um, recognition of the right to peoples to self-determination. This is just an extension of the individual right to, to liberty and the right to freedom and the right to, to, to govern yourself and make your own choices as long as you don't infringe on the equal rights of others. Simple. And so when you collect, when you exercise that right to liberty collectively, it's known under international law as the right to self-determination. And it's manifestly not the case that the Palestinians have been denying um, Israelis or the Jewish people their right to self-determination. It's manifestly up the opposite case right. that Israel, the Zionists, have denied this right to the Palestinians. Hence the need to try to reframe the whole issue in terms of Israel's right to exist. And, and we're told that Palestinians reject Israel's right to exist. So therefore, the, the Palestinians become the bad guys right. by, by virtue, by means of this propaganda narrative. And so what the, the demand that the Palestinians recognize Israel's right to exist, what that really is, is a demand for the Palestinians to, to recognize the means by which Israel was created That's right. as having been legitimate. So the question is, how was Israel created? Israel was created by ethnically cleansing most of the Arab population from their homes in Palestine. That's how Israel came into and, and, existence. And it's not, and, and although we can make a case for like a long term, I mean, this was a very specific and deliberate thing that happened at a very specific, deliberate time. Am I, am I correct about that? Well, yes. Um, although the, you know, it really, this all happened, the mandate era, just to quickly mm -hmm. summarize, and I'll get to the, the article yeah. uh, on what's happening in Gaza. Um, so uh, during World War One, Britain, you know, invaded Palestine, took it over, um, gained control of it from the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Ottoman Empire was dissolved by the end of the war. Um, we had the, the, the League of Nations was established, created this mandate system to kind of According to the, the the charter of the League of Nations, the purpose of the mandates was to tutor the the people of, of the region, the former Ottoman territories, in their their exercise of self determination to help them gain their independence. This was the purpose. Um, so the, the 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 when it came to the the mandate, the Palestine mandate, the British um, occupation in Palestine, the League of Nations violated its own charter. Um, the mandate was written, the, the Palestine mandate was actually drafted by the Zionists, the same as the Balfour Declaration was actually drafted mm -hmm. by Lord 
Lionel Walter Rothschild, not by Arthur Balfour, the, the British foreign minister. It was and this is not by the Zionists. This is not conspiracy. This is like a proven no, no. 100% fact. You can fact. go to like, the, the British you, government's own website. Yeah, they have a yeah. website dedicated to the Balfour Declaration, and they show you the drafts, and they talk right. about it, and they explain the whole history. So no, this is this is this was the case. You can read in the Peel Commission report how how the the, the man, mandate for Palestine was drafted by the Zionist organization in the interests of the Zionist movement. Yeah, and so which, what you had was a belligerent occupation um, uh, uh, by the British to deny the Palestinians their right to self determination for the purpose of facilitating the Zionist project to reconstitute Palestine into a demographically Jewish state. By 1937, with the Peel Commission report, you had the Peel Commission proposing the first uh, partition of Palestine into a separate Jewish and Arab state. But their partition plan would have required what they called the compulsory transfer. That was the term, the compulsory transfer of hundreds of thousands of Arab Palestinians out of the proposed territory of the Jewish state. When the British government put their rubber stamp on the concept of ethnic cleansing, the Zionist leadership openly, they stopped talking about it in secret and whispering about it. They were openly um, in favor of ethnically cleansing Palestine from 1937 forward. Mm -hmm. This was, they were openly talking about ethnically cleansing Palestine. when, When you say forward, like, and, and this is just burned into my soul. The um, on Christmas Day, the tweet that the Jerusalem Post put out with a picture of the Sinai Peninsula, saying this would be a good place for the um, for the Palestinians to to move to. Like, there's no more clear definition of ethnic cleansing than that right there. Yeah. So let's. Um, so when nineteen forty when it, when forty seven you had the uh, the UN yes. um, partition plan re- resolution which went nowhere so just to quickly wrap this up UN resolution one eight one neither partitioned Palestine nor conferred any legal authority to the Zionist leadership for the unilateral declaration of the existence of the state of Israel on May fourteenth nineteen forty eight by that time a quarter million Arabs had already been ethnically cleansed from their homes. Um, the the for the neighboring Arab states intervened to try to stop the ethnic cleansing in Palestine. Didn't succeed very well. Um, Jordan managed to hold on to the West Bank. Egypt managed to hold on to the area which which we call the Gaza Strip. So let's come to today. Seventy percent. By the way, and I, but and I'm sorry because I, ha- I I need to go ahead ask you about this. And this is um, and I'm going to pronounce it the, the Nakba. Is that, is Nakba, that the, yeah. yeah, the Nakba, which is a specific time when 750,000 Arabs were moved off the land. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know the, the time frame when it happened, but I know it, it happened. Um, it's mm-hmm. very clear that it happened. And there are, and I mean, I'm kind of shocked that there are a lot of people that deny that this event occurred. The, the denials are untenable. Um, and I've written an article, and it, it turned it into a, a short ebook called "Benny Morris's Untenable Denial of the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine." So, Benny Morris, for people who don't know, um, is a preeminent Israeli historian. Um, he's written numerous books on on the origin of the refugee problem, what they call the Palestinian refugee problem, inclu- including the book 1948. Um, and, and he he has on, on one hand he has said things like without the expulsion of 700,000, actually the, the estimate that seems most realistic to me is 750,000 
Um, but he, in, his, in the quote, he said 700,000. So yeah, without the expulsion of 700,000 Arabs, um, the, the Jewish state couldn't have come into being. Therefore, it was necessary to expel them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's a Zionist. He maintains the Zionist ideology. And so he's also an Israeli historian. So he's an Israeli historian who writes through the perspective of being ideologically Zionist. Um, and so later on, um, after years after that quote, he tried to deny, he has tried to deny in the, in the pages of the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that that ethnic cleansing occurred. And, and I wrote this article in an ebook um, documenting how his denial is untenable. And you can show how this claim, his claim that it wasn't ethnic cleansing is, is contradicted by his own documentation in his own, from his own research. And so yeah, the, the denials are untenable. So time frame, you asked about time frame. So from the end of uh, November 1947, which was when the partition plan um, resolution was adopted by the General Assembly, to May, mid-May 1948. Um, From that time, about 250,000 or more Arabs had already been ethnically cleansed. By the end, by the time armistice agreements were signed in 1949, uh, 750,000 Arabs had become refugees. Um, Over 500 Arab villages were literally wiped off the map so that the Jewish, the demographically Jewish state could, could come into existence. Okay. So there, that's kind of the time frame. Yeah. Um, and then, so 70% of the population of Gaza today is um, refugees or their descendants from Al-Nakba, which is Arabic for the catastrophe, which is how they refer to the establishment of the create, uh, the establishment of the state of Israel um, through the ethnic cleansing. So the, the, the Nakba is the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. And, and, um, and you know, to me, um, and again, I, I'm, cause I'm, I'm hearing arguments and you've heard them more times than I have, I'm sure. But the, the arguments of such like, well, you know, that was a long time ago. They need to get over it. The, the Indians got over. It. I mean, there's a bunch of really kind of weak arguments, but I would just want to say the reason why the time frame is important is because this was, I mean, in historical terms, yesterday, right. there are people still alive today that that um, experienced that very thing, and you know, we still um, hold the keys to the homes that, that they were expelled from. That's right. That's right. And <clears throat> you know, and and so for for somebody to be kind of um, so calloused to say, you know, get over it or go find a new place or, or whatever they want to say, like that doesn't change the fact that these people were absolutely pulled off their land. And it was a wrong that, that happened to them. And, you know, however they decide, like if, 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 um, you know, I live in Arizona, you know, if, if, um, if the Mexican government decided that they they wanted to ethnically cleanse all of the white people out of Arizona, you know, I would not be too happy about being pushed out of my house. Um, and, and I'll bet you my kids would be even less happy. And I'll bet the grandkids would probably be even angrier because that's just how this stuff works. And, and to deny that kind of human nature is, is, is insanity on its face. Right. And this is the reason the conflict persists, because there was this historical injustice um, where you had this manifestation of the rejection of Palestinian self-determination in the form of ethnic cleansing. And until that injustice is righted and this wrong is, is corrected. And, and, and I want to say like, just from my tentative research, it's, it's kind of worse than that. Cause not only was that justice 
happened to him and it's never been righted, but it's always been teased at, or it's always been, um, there's all these seemingly to me, seems like, you know, fake outs where it seems like there's going to be a peace process where it seems like they, they, they may not get their land back, but they're going to, they're going to have their own state. Um, but it always ends up looking more apartheid in prison camp than it does, um, you know, an actual running state. And, and you cannot, and you can't, nobody can blame the Palestinians for how Gaza looks because they have no control over how Gaza looks or how it's being run as, as much as, you know, as, as much as the Israelis, as the Zionists want to say they do, they just don't. They just don't. Yeah, there's there's this propaganda claim that, well, look, at Israel withdrew in 2005. And so this is the consequence of what happens when you let the Palestinians have their freedom. But the, the idea that that Israel's occupation of Gaza ended in 2005 is utterly ludicrous. Again, it's just an anti-intellectual claim. Um, the you know, you, the, Israel's blockade began in, in, two, in 1967, actually. People talk about the blockade beginning in 2006, 2007. That's not true. Actually, Israel, Israel has controlled the territory of Gaza since the 1967 war. Um, in 2004, Israel's National Security Council um, had Jura Island described Gaza as a, quote, huge concentration camp, appropriately. Uh, 2005, 2006, you had Hamas participating in in um, uh, municipal and then parliamentary elections, defeating Fatah, the party of um, PA President Mahmoud Abbas. That's how Hamas came to be the legitimate governing authority in all of the Palestinian-occupied territories. You had the U.S. and Israel then support uh, Fatah in a violent coup attempt against the Hamas-led government that failed. Hamas expelled Fatah from Gaza. And this is what is described in the Western mainstream media as the Hamas violent coup in Gaza. And that, and that this, this is how we're told that Hamas came to power in Gaza in response to that failed coup attempt against the uh, democratically elected government. Um, Israel implemented, uh, escalated its blockade policy into a state of siege uh, against the, 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 the Gaza Strip um, where you had uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's top advisor, Dov Weissglass, saying, joking, that the purpose was, he said, it, it'll be like an appointment with a dietitian. The Palestinians will get a lot thinner, but they won't die. At one point, Israel was literally counting the number of calories that the population needed to be able to, to, be able to determine how much food they were going to allow into Gaza. They were literally calculating the number of calories to maintain them at like what Norman Finkelstein appropriately describes as starvation plus diet. Items that Israel has was blockading at one point included like chocolate, potato chips, notebooks for schools. I mean, just ridiculous, absurd stuff. That so the idea that that you know Gaza became free in two thousand five is just utterly ahistorical. It's asinine, stupid propaganda. But and yet you you hear it claimed, and like like people who like we're supposed to take seriously make these types of claims. It's utterly absurd. Of course, there's no dispute about it under an international law. You won't find any any authoritative. Um, you know, UN agency or or human rights organization 
um, who, who will agree with is, you know, this claim that Israel's occupation ended in 2005. Israel has remained the occupying power in Gaza by virtue of its control of the territory. It withdrew its ground troops. It withdrew, it withdrew settlers in 2005. It maintained control over Gaza's land crossings, over its territorial waters, over its airspace, over its administrative functions. Um, nothing gets into or out of Gaza without Israel's permission. So, you know, so this is the state of Gaza. Gaza is a huge concentration camp. And, and so it should with like, and <clears throat> I think it's, re- this has been a really important premise to come up to October 7th, because you've got to understand, like it, it should surprise absolutely zero people that um, Hamas broke out of that concentration camp and went after Israelis. And, and you can say, I, I mean, I would, I would say like the going after the innocent people, like a hundred percent wrong. Like they should not do that. Um, should they target, should they target uh, Israeli leaders and, and um, their occupiers? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have the answer, but I do know that, that, you have to understand what happened in order to, to to not be surprised by what they did. Yeah. So on that point, it's also recognized right under international law that an occupied people have a right to the use of arms um, against their occupier. Okay. So the Palestinian people have a right to use armed force against the occupying power. That said, of course, all parties to any conflict must exercise their whether their right to self-defense, their right to resistance to an occupying foreign military occupying power. Um, they must exercise those rights within the realm of, of morality, yeah. um, which, which is, you know, basically you attack military targets, you don't attack civilian targets. Um, and so Hamas did attack military targets uh, on October 7th. Um, of course, they also uh, committed horrific atrocities in, at- in attacking um, Israeli civilians as well and taking Israeli civilians hostages, which is, of course, also a war crime. But you look at the language used. So when we describe the Israelis who were taken out of Israel into Gaza, um, they're rightly described as hostages. And you have a different terminology entirely when Israel goes into the occupied territories, takes women children, removes them from the occupied territories, which by the way, is also against international law. We don't call them hostages. In the Western media, they're not described as hostages. They're detainees. Detainees. Prisoners. prisoners. Well, okay. What's the distinction? Right. They're hostages. And by the way, you know, there's um, women and children being held in um, what, what's called administrative detention in Israel, which is, uh, 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 you know, the prisoners right. are, are, are held without charge, without trial. They're held indefinitely without charge or trial. They're just in the state of, of legal limbo, um, which, of course, is just violates all principles of, of justice. And, and again, removing Palestinians from the occupied territories to Israeli prisons is itself a war crime. It's a violation of international law. Israel is not allowed to do that legally. Um, and so you, you look at the language that's used 
Um, you have hostages on one side versus detainees and pris prisoners on the other. It's all very prejudicial against against the Palestinians. Um, and we could look at other examples of, of the use of language, but you know, going into the peace process in particular. Um, but let's stick with um, the events of 10-7 and, and what's been happening since. Um, so yeah, there were there were horrific atrocities. And another another caveat to this is that you know there's quite a bit of evidence that a lot of the Israeli civilians that were killed were killed by Israeli forces in the crossfire. Hmm, um, yeah. So the Israeli forces were firing indiscriminately on, on their own people, killing hostages along with Hamas terrorists. Um, so that's another aspect of this. By the way, and, and let me let me ask ask this because. Um, I don't want to add a parallelism where there is none, right? <laughs> like, I don't want to. But um, in the same way, it, it, it still baffles me. In the same way that 9-11 was foreseen and was, <clears throat> excuse me, it was foreseen. Um, we knew it was going to happen. We knew when it was going to happen. And, and, and I don't understand how the most secured the mo the Gaza Strip um, had the, the the most um, uh, you know the, the the great biggest prison camp in the world, um, you know with with eyes everywhere from the IDF. Um, how could they? You know, two questions. One, number one, how did they not foresee that this happening? Was it just hubris, which is kind of what we're hearing? And number two. How did they not see the the training that had to happen, the kind of weapons, the kind of material that had to come in if they're controlling everything? So that's kind of my my question on, on how those things happen. Yeah, well, we, we touched on that in our last discussion. And at the time, um, I, I think I had mentioned that I hadn't really seen any evidence of foreknowledge, like right. like actionable foreknowledge. There, there were reports, you know, Egyptian intelligence had warned of some some possible event, but you know, this is just kind of standard routine stuff. But since then, since we last talked um, the New York times had a very detailed investigative report showing clearly, absolutely that the Israeli intelligence knew about it. They knew about it. They absolutely knew about it. And, and they warned the government. Um, and so the foreknowledge is, is now a known fact that the Israeli government had advanced knowledge that, Hamas was planning a major operation. Um, and so then the question is, well, then was it allowed to happen? A lot of people I know are convinced that, which I understand um, because, you know, there's this kind of view of Israeli intelligence of Mossad um, as kind of these, you know, like almost like mythical type of powerful yeah. well, intelligence yeah. forces. The Israeli military <laughs> is ranked as one of the most powerful militaries in the world. We kind of have kind of this kind of almost mythical view of the, the might of the Israeli military and its competence. And I really think what, what we saw was um, really, I think, attributable to hubris, to be honest, um, because, number one, the Netanyahu government, I really think that it was Netanyahu's policies that led to this. Um, it really was a failure of policy. Um, related to, and you know, look, look at it. It, it hasn't served his political interests at all. Um, apart from, you know, obviously his government has used it as, you know, similar to how the neocons use 9-11 as an opportunity. Right. So Netanyahu has used it 
as an opportunity to finish the job, to try to finish the job in Gaza of what was started in 1948, 1947. Um, but I don't think this was a plan. I don't think they they I don't think that Netanyahu's government allowed it to happen as a pretext to perpetrate this genocide in Gaza. I really think it's a reactionary response that has been really done without any kind of like pre-planning at all. Um, you know, with no exit strategy. I mean, the the, oh. the only exit strategy is basically. I mean, this comes to the Wipe article that you wanted to yours? discuss. <laughs> the, I mean, looking at the article that I had written that you you wanted to discuss. Yeah. Um, I guess this brings us to that. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at what they've been saying. Um, well, it, it, well, I guess I can come back to that because just to wrap up the point, you're asking about you know this uh, the foreknowledge. How how could they not? I really think you look at certain aspects of Netanyahu's policy. Number one, using um, using Hamas as a strategic ally. For sure. Specifically for the purpose of ensuring that there was no movement towards peace negotiations with the Palestinians. This is open, explicit, very, th Clear. this was the purpose of Netanyahu's policy. Netanyahu was using Hamas as a strategic ally. We can control the height of the Israeli newspapers on that. You don't need to take my word for that. You can read the Israeli media. It's all over the place. This is just a known, it was an open policy that he was doing that. Um, advancing Sharon's disengagement plan. So the 2005 withdrawal of forces from Gaza while maintaining the occupation, the status as an occupying power in Gaza was part of what was called the disengagement plan. It was, a, it was basically they were giving up on the goal of settling Gaza in addition to settling the West Bank to be able to shift the resources to gain the political leverage necessary towards expanding the illegal settlement regime in the West Bank. This also was was open and, bla and blatant and brazen. Again, Sharon's top advisor, Dove Weissglass, described this disengagement plan as the, quote, formaldehyde necessary to put the peace process, you know, in its coffin. Right. <laughs> wow. And so, again, this is explicit policy of of blocking any movement towards peace negotiations with the Palestinians. Netanyahu took that policy and advanced it um, and expanded it. Um, and so this was his explicit goal, um, shifting resources, moving um, so soldiers off of the armistice line in Gaza into the West Bank to protect settlers who have been violently attacking. You have the Israeli settler attacks against Palestinians. By the way, what's happening, is, it's not just in Gaza. Um, also, the West Bank is becoming increasingly chaotic, um, increasing number of deaths, settler attacks. An Israeli which, Israeli raids, which you, you it's could happening predict. in the West Bank to, on a much lesser scale and extent, but the, the violence has greatly escalated in, in the West Bank as well. Um, so he, he had these explicit policies. There was the the whole um, judicial coup, as it's been described in Israeli media, where Netanyahu was trying to reform the judiciary to bring it under his government's control, so it had less independence. It would stand less in the way of his policy. Um, agendas. Um, and that led to uh, um, Israeli reservists um, refusing duty, you know, um, Air Force people refusing duty. It was really dividing Israeli society to, and, and to the extent where it was, it was um, causing this political uprising, this protest right. movement within the Israeli military. You had the heads of the Israeli military warning, like this is this is really putting us in a position like 
we will not be able to defend this country if wow. something happens. Like they were saying that. Wow. And so you really, so to me, it's really believable that um, the attacks were not allowed to happen. I really think Netanyahu's government turned a blind eye to the intelligence. Um, and it really was hubris where he thought that he, Netanyahu convinced himself that the Gazans were contained in their concentration camp. And he had Hamas in there um, serving his purpose. Right. And he thought Hamas was contained in there and he wasn't willing to um, to see it any other way. And he really he really turned up. And, and he, I mean, this is blowback for him. I mean, there's it's the definition of it. He, yeah. At least him. You could make an argument that people within his government or something somehow were involved in, in you know, allowing it to happen somehow. But in terms of Netanyahu himself, absolutely. There's just no way. You look at his polls. I mean, he, the only reason he's still in office right now is because of the solidarity of we need to respond to we need to respond yeah. to the Hamas attacks, and so we have this war coalition, and that's the only reason he's still in power. And we can anticipate he's not going to be it, once Israel's military operation ends. We can anticipate Netanyahu, Netanyahu's career. He's he's done. So yeah. I I don't. So I need, don't believe I get a lot of pushback for saying this, but I don't um, even with the, the now we have knowledge. We know that there was foreknowledge. Like the New York Times report is clear about that. Um, but but that hasn't changed my overall assessment because you look at Netanyahu's policies and it's really believable that, yeah, it really was um, a, a failure of the of the the military and intelligence. Well, I, I, I appreciate uh, the you. political leadership. Yeah. I appreciate your conservative and and you know approach to that. Uh, I think it's wise um, to to you know see where the evidence takes us and not jump to jump to conclusions where we don't have to, because um, it's easy to right, make. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I think that's that's a good point. If we, if we can otherwise explain it, I think we should maintain conservative yeah. uh, conclusions and and not make leaps of logic. So yeah. I mean, if 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 it wasn't if it wasn't otherwise explainable, I would probably also arrive at the conclusion that they must have allowed it to happen because, um, you know, for all the reasons we've, we've described, but I, in this case, um, looking at the political context and Netanyahu's policies, um, that, that alone explains it. To, to and, and you're going to go here, but I think, I, I think one of those evidences that you're citing is that they weren't, while they had foreknowledge, they were probably not prepared and didn't have a, have a strategic plan is what's happening that they have painted themselves in a corner. Can you talk about that and talk about, because I think that takes us right into that uh, December 12th article. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, the operation in Gaza was not pre-planned and it's not like operation cast lead in 2000, um, which December 27th, 2008 to January 18th, 2009, um, which I documented extensively in my book, uh, um, obstacle to peace. Um, that operation was pre-planned. There was a ceasefire even before the ceasefire, um, uh, there was a six-month ceasefire with Hamas, which, by the way, was broken by Israel. Uncontroversially, Hamas honored that ceasefire. It was violated by Israel, um, specifically to provoke reactions and responses, is to create a pretext for its pre-planned operation. Okay, that operation was pre-planned. This one, I haven't seen any, any evidence that it was. It's, it really was like a knee-jerk reaction. Like we were attacked on on ten seven. We are going to respond, and if you look at the declarations from Israeli leaders, um, uh, influential people in Israeli society, journalists, 
um, Knesset members, top heads of the military, top political officials, Netanyahu invoking the Amalekites in the Bible, right. which was the Israelite genocide of, of the tribe, the Amalek tribe. Um, it, they have been openly genocidal in their declared intentions, openly genocidal. So that's number one. By the way, is that, and, and maybe I should save this for the end, but I mean, that seems, it's kind of like when you get a, a, a man drunk, he speaks the truth. Is this kind of what, uh, you know, is there evidence to say that, that this is how, um, although it was pre-planned, their intention at some point was always to clear uh, Gaza and clear the West Bank? Sure, it's, it's the logical corollary of the Zionist ideology. It's the, it's the logical corollary of, of the ideology that created Israel through the ethnic cleansing of, of Palestine in the first place. Right, right. Um, and so it, this is what I mean when I say, you know, like it, it, it's the Netanyahu government sees the Hamas attacks of 10-7 as an opportunity to essentially finish what it started in 1948. This is what I meant by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really the thin veil has been lifted. And the true face of modern political Zionism is there for all to see. This is what it's always been. It's just, you know, a question of what could Israel get away with politically? What was politically feasible? And Israel has been getting away with genocide in Gaza because it has had the U.S.'s support for this genocide. Um, And it it has been perpetrating what meets the definition of genocide. Um within the uh, limits of political feasibility. Because, you know, you hear, you hear people make this argument, like, well, if Israel wanted to commit genocide, it would just flatten the place in three days. Right. <laughs> right? Well, okay, there are limits to what's politically feasible. And so when right. I say Israel is committing genocide to the, to the limits of what is politically feasible, right up to the very limits of what's politically feasible. And I think I think a bold and brave, but I think a true move that you make in your article is you make the distinction between the between yourself and the New York Times, where the New York Times would call that you know part of war. You say no, this is not war. This is genocide. Right. I mean the the the, the ticker tapes and you know the 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 news they always show, or you know, and when you're reading the newspapers, they have this category: the Israel Hamas war, the Israel Hamas war. Well, when you have a situation where you have one of the most advanced, powerful militaries, literally, I mean, you, there, there are rankings, you know, they have like annual rankings for military might. And Israel is ranked like, in the, I think in the last one I read, it was ranked like 10th in the world in terms of um, its military power. It is a major military power. It's, it's one of the most powerful, it's regularly described as one of the most powerful militaries on the planet. It's armed with, you know, heavy, heavy weaponry. It's got Apache Cobra attack helicopters. F-16s. US supplied. It's got F-16s. <laughs> you know, it's got, um, uh, it's got fighter jets and bombers and, supplied. And, you know, and some would say it's got a nuclear weapon or two. It, yes. Well, this is also quite uncontroversial. Right. Controversial <laughs> in the sense that Israel has never admitted, admitted it officially. Right. <laughs> Um, but certainly, it's uncontroversial that, that the, the world knows that Israel has a nuclear capability. Um, so when you have one of the world's most powerful militaries 
raining down 2,000 pound bombs on a defenseless civilian population. And when I say defenseless, okay, Hamas has a non-zero capability of putting up resistance to Israeli ground forces. Okay. But the Palestinian people, they have no military. They have no army. They have no air force. They have no navy. They are a defenseless population. Yeah, it would it would be the same as the uh, you know the Pentagon you know putting all uh, five branches of the military against an, an Indian tribe, an Indian reservation, or something, it's and calling it really a war. the equivalent, and calling it a war, right? Yeah. So this is what I mean. This is this is when when you have one of the world's most powerful militaries raining down death and destruction on a literally defenseless civilian population. That's not war. I think to describe that as war is just intellectual dishonesty. It's not a war. It's a right. massacre. And, and by the way, it's also, I think it does the war, the, the word war disservice because how, how would this be any kind of justified war anyway. In other words, like if your purpose is to go in and root out Hamas and root out the people that, um, that planned, organized and committed this attack on, on uh, October 7th, that's not a war. That's a police action. That's a, I mean, you can call it a bunch of stuff, but what it's not is a war. And so what's happening there is neither a police action nor a war. It's something else. It's something else. Right. Um, and it's, it's massive war crimes. And, you know, in the beginning, <clears throat> people were putting up this defense of, well, Israel is targeting Hamas. Israel does its utmost to avoid harm to civilians. And that was the same thing during Operation Castlet. It was untenable during Operation Castlet. It was untenable during Operation Pillar of Cloud. It was untenable during Operation Protective Edge in 2014. All of these prior operations, it's always been untenable. The claims about Hamas using Al-Shifa as a military headquarters and with this this massive underground base below the hospital. Right. Well, we we heard about that. Back in 2008, 2009, during Operation Castlet, no evidence ever produced. Same thing here. The, the claim that civilians only die because they're being used by Hamas as human shields depends on a euphemistic use of the, the term human shields um, that is incompatible with its definition under international law. Because what Israel means when it describes um, Palestinians as being used as human shields, it means all Palestinians in Gaza, by virtue of their being in Gaza. That's what a human shield is. Right. So and, any and civilian that's killed, any civilian that's killed in Gaza is described as a human shield. And by the way, the proof, they were killed in Gaza. Right. And the proof of that not, is not just on its face, you know, true because of, you know, what's happening. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I think, especially in America, when we have this very, you know, um, we have a view of what the Middle East is like. We have a view of who Israel is. We have a view of who the, the people in Gaza are, the Palestinians are. Um, you know, we think of the Palestinians as this kind of like, you know, Arab Muslim 
you know, folk who, who are kind of backwards and, and living in, in a third world country. Um, and unfortunately, like what we're seeing now is we're seeing IDF sniping at Christian churches, murdering and cold blood, as far as I can tell, um, you know, women who have nothing, who probably didn't vote for Hamas back in 2005 and, you know, and, and probably wouldn't today. But because they are Palestinians, because they're, they're going to church, a Christian church, they're somehow being used as, as human shields. It makes zero sense. And it's absolutely a I, I need I, I really want my audience to know like it's 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 not a bunch of radical Muslims. It's, this isn't a holy war that's going on. What's going on is is a, an absolute genocide, as you say. I'm going to use that term as well. It's a genocide that's happening. And, and anybody gets in the way is is a victim. Sure. Yeah. You had the event. Um, well, back in October, I think October 19th or 20th. Um, is one incident uh, where a church was targeted. Um, that was in, in central Gaza. <clears throat> uh, more recently, mid-December, um, there was the attack on, on the Catholic parish, uh, I think in northern Gaza, uh, which the Pope himself condemned as an act of terrorism. Uh, a mother and, and her daughter on, in the church compound were sniped and murdered by Israeli sniper. Um um, it, it, yeah, you have these attacks where, you know, the Vatican put out a statement describing, you know, saying that there was no possible military objective. There was no, they weren't being used as human shields. This was just cold, uh, uh, the, the uh, Cardinal in England described it as, as cold blooded murder, which it was. Of which course. it was. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and that's happening pretense, and that's happening like, on a gigantic scale, like, like, you know, you can, you can name these individuals and, and you know, what did Stalin say? You know, one person killed is murder, uh, you know, 10,000 or a million is a statistic. And that's what's happening is they're trying to turn this into a statistic. Yeah. And, and in terms of statistics over 22,000 now, this is minimal, you know, are estimated dead. And, and that, I say that's a conservative estimate because of course there are many, many more who are missing and, you know, buried under the rubble. People don't know the true extent, uh, or the true death toll. So they can only put out this kind of conservative minimal estimates of the numbers of dead. 70%, 70% are women and children. Well, what would you expect? What would you expect the, the, the proportions to be if Israel was actually targeting Hamas? Would you expect the proportion of women and children dead? to be approximately the proportion of women and children in the pal- in the population well this so this is the proportion you would expect if if Israel was indiscriminately bombarding the civilian population you would expect about 70% to be women and children and that's, that's right, exactly that's, what we see why that's the because Israel is indiscriminately bombing the civilian population right it's simple right. and and so the, this idea yeah this idea yeah. that Israel is targeting Hamas is is ludicrous you can anyone with eyes to see can open their eyes and see that Israel is not targeting Hamas. Israel is targeting the civilian population. Yeah. It has declared its intent, intention openly, repeatedly since the very beginning to target the civilian population. That's right. This is I, I don't know why this doesn't get through people's skulls. I don't get it. Like when you have Israeli leaders openly declaring their intent, and of course, now of course, they have this caveat. The IDF puts out these statements that we're doing, you know, in response to. To appease the U.S. regime that is supporting this, you know, right. the U.S. requires the IDF to put out these statements of like, 
Well, we're we're taking steps to limit the harms to the civilian population. Uh, another example, um, several weeks ago, finally, there, there, there was only the Rafa crossing was open for humanitarian relief, which is a cynical farce because even before this, even before 10-7, there were 500 truckloads of humanitarian supplies needed per day through the crossings just to maintain uh, the Palestinian populations at subsistence level. 500 trucks per day. Right now, at, at a time when that needs to be ramped up Right, like many times, yeah. There's like maybe about a hundred trucks a day. It's a cynical propaganda public relations ploy. It, it doesn't even begin to meet the needs at a time when the, the humanitarian—it's just absolute humanitarian catastrophe. Oh, you're seeing entire blocks of neighborhoods just crumble. Entire crumble. multi-general fam- families, generational would- families wiped out. I would encourage everybody go to jeremyrhammond.com, go look up the article on December 12th. And all you need to do, I mean, I would recommend read the article, look at the pictures though. Just look at the pictures that he look provides. It, 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 there, there is no way there's any kind of targeting going on. So let's, let's describe those, those graphics. And, and so that article, what prompted me to write that article was a, an interactive feature in the New York Times where they showed satellite imagery from northern Gaza of what the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, have been doing in north Gaza. Um, And so they had before, and there were these huge graphic um, features where there was a slider, and you could just slide it left and right and and to compare before and after, before and after of what Gaza looked like from satellite surveillance. And... The IDF has literally turned North Gaza into a wasteland. And you see, you have a before, and you see neighborhoods, buildings, uh, orchards, farmland, greenhouses, and you swipe it, and it's all gone. Just leveled. Everything. Like they've turned it into a desert wasteland. They have flattened it completely. Completely And it's just image after image of just wasteland. So evidently Hamas uses orchards as floral shields. Well, the tunnels. How do you explain this? Right? There's tunnels everywhere. It's it's insane for people to say that, oh, well, Israel is targeting Hamas and it needs this operation to get Hamas. And it does everything possible. No, Israel is, is, Israel is, fulfilling we can see that it is it is implementing a policy of making gaza uninhabitable that's the declared intent and that's what we see happening on the ground israel's plan is to make gaza uninhabitable yeah and and, and so the palestinians are left with a choice and this is also just open and it is near as explicit as as you can be that the the choice left to the palestinians is they can flee through Rafa and live in tent cities in the Sinai Desert, which Egypt won't let them do because Egypt doesn't want to take responsibility for a humanitarian catastrophe for Israel's crimes. Israel, so Israel, <laughs> right. so Egypt is not going to open 
the Rafa crossing to allow hundreds of thousands, millions, two point, the population is 2.2 million. It's not going to open the Rafa crossing to allow Palestinian refugees made refugees repeatedly. Again, remember 70% of the population is refugees from the 1948 ethnic cleansing or the descendants. At the start of its operations, Israel ordered the 1.1 million Gazans living north of what's called the, the, the Wadi Gaza. The, there's a wetland area that kind of bisects Gaza into it, northern and southern halves. So everyone living north of that line, 1.1 million people were told to flee south, which many of them did, uh, while Israel was bombing the south as well. Um, and then... And repeatedly, you have a situation where you have refugees, you know, internally displaced persons, as they're called, um, fleeing to places like hospitals, um, UN-run schools, churches, you know, fleeing to wherever they think, you know, that there might be some semblance of shelter and safety. Um, And Israel is systematically targeting those places, you know, systematically targeting the hospitals. Out of 36 hospitals in Gaza, I think as of yesterday, only 13 were even partially functional. Oh, wow. Oh, man. So you have, you have, and and like Israel going into places to shut them down, like going into Al Shifa and shutting it down. Their bases. And, and, and expelling the people who were expelling not only um, the, the, the refugees who were there trying to find some kind of shelter, but also the sick and injured, like pulling the plugs on incubators and, and, and premature babies dying because, because the hospital was shut down. Um, and this is systematic. You know, I mean, Al-Shifa is, is one where it was very prominent and prominently featured because of, of Israel's uh, propaganda yeah. claim um, for which it has produced no evidence. And even, you know, like Washington Post had a feature on this several weeks back um, where they were looking at all the claims that the IDF made, um, you know, and the supposed evidence that the IDF has produced to try to support its claim. It Because it had, it had justified its operation against Al-Shifa Hospital um, uh, on the basis of the claim. And it produced this like graphic, like computer generated animation of what it showed as like this multi-level, like massive military um, headquarters bunkered underneath, you know, this bunker system underneath the hospital. That's what it claimed was there. It's not a shred of evidence that such, such headquarters. And you mentioned there there is a basement, there is a bunker basement in, in the hospital, but that was built by the Israelis. I mean, like you said, they knew it was there because they built it. Um, And so you have just this horrific false propaganda narrative for which Israel, you know, they're lying, of course. This is what the IDF does. They lie and they lie. Oh, like, oh, we we don't use white phosphorus munitions, you know, like these types of claims. Um, You you have systematic targeting of, of the civilian infrastructure. Farmland, greenhouses, hospitals, schools, UN-run schools being used to shelter civilians. And so you have people like fleeing from place to place to place. Like they fled the north and they went south. And then then they were told to leave the south and flee where? 
Um, you know, right. people like going from school refugee camp to refugee camp, trying to find some kind of, there's no place safe. There's no, no place, place for them to go. Um, and, and yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a systematic targeting of the civilian population and civilian infrastructure of Gaza. That's what it is. The, the idea that they're targeting Hamas is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and and by the way, Hamas is still there. I mean, they claim that their their goal of their operation is to eliminate and, Hamas. And this is and this is to me like eliminating Hamas is to me the the equivalent of like um, I don't know um, eliminating Marxism or eliminating Nazi. Like it's an idea. You don't eliminate it. And as long as there's power, and that power comes from anger, and that anger comes from a wrong and and wrong after wrong after wrong that has been done to them. It just fuels like, so, so they get rid of every single Hamas member. Well, Hamas too is right around the corner. I mean, this is right. That's, that's the silliness of it is, is um, like nothing, nothing changes unless two things happen. There's some sort of um, conciliatory, some sort of recognition by the Zionists, by Israel, that things were wrong and and while they can't make things right they can do something or they're dead i i i really don't see like the the more i look at this and i look at the options you know i suppose egypt may someday open up its borders or something like that might happen um you know in a desperate situation um but but either way from the river to the sea, Israel is free. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know the, I don't see another option. And, and I'm just a dumb musician. Like I'm like, I'm a crazy musician. <laughs> I'm not the smartest cookie in the bin, but, but I, I don't see another option from that, from that. From what's no, I, happening. I, I've, I've come around sharing that view. I used to, um, when I wrote obstacle to peace, uh, which was published in 2016, my view was kind of, um, f- favoring the idea of a single state solution. Um, but then the question being, how do we get there? And so what I advocated in the book was let's first implement the two state solution, which effectively just means end the occupation of Gaza in the West Bank. Yeah. That's what it means. I mean, implementing resolution 242, um, that that's what the two state solution is based on. So the, the, the two, and here's a distinction that people need to be aware of is that the two state solution, the one that the international community favors and, and based on UN resolution 242 um, is is based on the applicability of international law to the conflict. So UN 242 being the UN Security Council resolution passed in the wake of the 1967 war that was started by Israel with a surprise attack on Egypt, not vice versa. Um, So that resolution calling on Israel to withdraw its forces to the pre-June 5th uh, lines, so sometimes called the 1967 lines, sometimes called the Green Line, um, sometimes called the 1949 Armistice lines. These all mean the same thing. So Armistice lines. Um, so the requirement being that Israel needed to fully and immediately withdraw its forces in, in compliance with international law, um, which of course Israel has had its own unilateral interpretation of, which is that Israel it doesn't need to withdraw until there's a final peace settlement. And so the people living under occupation must 
negotiate with the occupying power over how much of their own land they're going to be allowed to continue living in and then maybe exercising some kind of limited autonomy over. That's Israel's interpretation of UN Resolution 242, which has no basis, um, it has no legitimacy. No. Um, but this this is the, the interpretation of 242 that the U.S. has agreed to and adopted as the premise, as the foundation of what was what's called the peace process, quote unquote, peace process. That's the peace process. So the peace process in reality was always the means by which Israel and its superpower benefactor blocked implementation of the two-state solution in favor of a two-state solution grounded on the premise of the inapplicability of international law to the conflict. So people need to understand that. The, the, yeah. the peace process was never about implementing the two-state solution. It was always the means to block implementation of the two-state solution. The, That's right. incredibly important for people to understand for all the details they can read obstacle to peace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's just that's just a really critical point to emphasize. And and then you hear, you know, I mentioned earlier the use of language. You hear um, the term concessions, for example. You hear Israel has made concessions, and the Palestinians have always rejected yes. their own state. They rejected their own state in 1937 with the Peel Partition, uh, the Peel Commission Partition Plan, which called for the compulsory transfer of hundreds of thousands of Arabs out of the Jewish state so that that state could be a demographic, demographically Jewish state. Well, so they were unreasonable for rejecting ethnic cleansing? Right. Really? They were being intransigent and unreasonable by rejecting that? This is what this is what the level of intellectualism when you hear that, well they've re they've repeatedly rejected offers for a state of their own. It it's idiocy. It is in 1947 UN partition plan. Jews owned about 7% of the land in Palestine. Arabs owned more land in every single district of Palestine. By that time, mainly through immigration, the Jewish population had increased, but it was still only about 30% of the population. The majority population was still um, Arab Muslims and Christians. Um, mostly Muslims, but also a sizable Christian um, population. Right. Um, and, and and yet the partition plan called for the Jewish state to be established on 55% of the land of historic Palestine. This it, was ludicrous. It was ludicrously unjust and inequitable. And the inequitability of it is, is acknowledged in the report itself. If you read, um, so the, the partition plan recommendation was the product of a, a commission called the UN Special Committee on Palestine or UNSCOP. And you can read the UNSCOP report for yourself, and you can see right in there how they say, they readily admit that the principle of self-determination, which is, of course, explicitly recognized in the UN Charter as a universal right of all peoples, that the principle of self-determination was not applied to Palestine, obviously, to advance the agenda of the Zionists to create their Jewish state there. Right. So it's right in there. It's like they're literally saying, well, yeah, we have to reject the right of Palestinians to self-determination because we want to help the Jews establish well, this state. And again, the, the propaganda is so deep, you know, uh, it, it's, it, you know, the, it, it's, I've, I've, I've read and listened to many interviews where, where Zionists and, and Israel defenders will say, you know, the, and, and the, they literally just say Israel or, or the Arabs rejected, you know, the plan. 
so Israel had to go to war. Like those two things are illogical. That doesn't make yeah. sense. And it's 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 insane that this type of propaganda is even. It's so widespread, and so many people just buy right into it. But you, you, I mean, it's just so simple to 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 see through this thin veil of of lies and deception. I mean, you want to see who the real rejectionists are. You want to know who the rejectionists are. Look at the UN resolutions that are passed every year annually in the General Assembly. There's two of them in particular. One is a a reaffirmation of the two-state solution. Well, guess who who, who votes against that every single year in the UN General Assembly? Israel (laughs) and the United States. Yeah. There's another one. It's a reaffirmation. It's a very short resolution. It's simply, it just simply reaffirms that the right to self-determination is a internationally recognized right codified in the UN Charter. The Palestinians have a right to self-determination and the international community has an obligation to help the Palestinians fulfill their desire to exercise their right to self-determination. Guess who votes against that resolution year after year? Israel and the United States. Who are and, the rejectionists? It is, and it's absolutely inconscionable, especially the United States. For you know, and again, this goes back to our previous you know conversation where we talked about the education system. But it is unconscionable that the United States that has that its founding document is exactly that that we have the right of self determination. We get to decide. Who is our leader? We get to decide how our government is run. And if it's not working for us, we have the right and duty to throw off that government that the United States does not allow that same right to the Palestinians is unconscionable. Yes. Yes. Very well said. It is unconscionable. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, 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 it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Um, and so I, I, this is the root cause of the yeah. conflict. The root cause of the conflict is the rejection of Palestinian self-determination. If we ever want to see an end to the conflict, this rejectionism must cease. They have to be allowed to exercise their fundamental human rights. Absolutely. 100%. And it's manifestly not the Palestinians who are denying the fundamental human rights and, to the people of Israel. It's the and you it's know what? vice versa. And if they're given the and I say given, they have those rights, but if they're allowed to exercise those rights, and they decide through the exercise of those rights to um, put on va- violence against people, um, Jewish people and Zionists in Israel, I will be the first to condemn them. And I'll be the first to say that is wrong. And I'll be the first to say we need to do something about that. But until they're allowed to exercise those rights, it's it, like we, we have no moral justification to, to be doing what we're doing and to be, for Israel to be doing certainly what it's doing. Well, so that brings us back to the question of, you know, that one state versus two states. And so my former thinking was, you know, implement the two state solution, which is essentially Israeli withdrawal, ending the occupation, not just withdrawal, but ending the occupation. It's not just like what happened in Gaza in 2005. Right. Ending the occupation. They can have an airport. They can have control over their international waters. They can fish their territorial waters. You know, they, they can trade with other countries freely. They can engage in diplomacy with other countries freely and enter into treaties with other countries freely. Um, They can actually, they can have a national exercise, the national rights of self-defense, which is another condition of of Israel's when they're in their generous offers. Oh, and and, uh, coming back to that point about the use of the term concessions, 
So I want to wrap that point up. So that whenever you see, you know, that Israel has made concessions to the Palestinians throughout the peace process, such as Camp David, for example. Well, what that means is that Israel was willing to accept less than what it wants. So that's considered an Israeli concession, which, of course, is a ridiculous, absurd framework for analysis. The proper framework is, again, what are both parties entitled to under international law? Right. And basic right. common sense and and, just and, and negotiating skills, right? Property uh, rights. So it looked at under the proper framework of what each party was entitled to. The only concessions ever made, always and ever came from the Palestinian side, starting with the Palestinian acceptance of the two-state solution, which was calling for a Palestinian state on just twenty-two percent of the former territory of Palestine. That's a major concession. And it wasn't enough for the Israelis who had already, um, uh, you know, as a result of the 1948 war, had already taken over 78% of Palestine through ethnic cleansing, which was considerably more territory than even the inequitable, absurdly prejudicial UN partition plan had suggested for the Jewish state. But it's not enough for the Zionists. It's never enough. They want more. They, essentially, what the Zionists want is all of the land in Palestine without the Palestinians, hence the ethnic cleansing in 1948, hence the genocide in Gaza to this that's happening right now. And uh, one of the more positive developments, um, you know, to look at light at the end of the tunnel and and reason for hope is that the government of South Africa, uh, bless it, has has filed an application with the International Court of Justice charging Israel with the crime of genocide. Good. And we've seen since that happened, um, was it a week or two ago? It was just quite recently. I, I wrote an article about it. Um, and we have seen Israel actually, since that happened, since that application was filed, Israel actually pulled out uh, some of its forces. Um, and I just saw a New York Times headline today, haven't read the article yet, um, but saying that Israel has announced that it is going to start drawing down its operation and start starting to pull back. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think Israel knows that it is really in big trouble legally um, because I I think Israel must recognize that it will not be able to defend itself against this charge at the international court of justice, um, both because of the openly declared, and you can read the the application It's quite long. It's a few hundred pages long, um, but it's very well documented. It's very well done. I mean, I, I, I didn't read the whole thing very carefully, but I, I did read at least the first half or th- three quarters or so um, pretty quickly. And then I kind of scanned the rest of it right? just for sake of time. It was quite long um, before I wrote the article about it. But, um, you know, like, like, for example, they, they detail statement after statement after statement of like openly genocidal intent from Israeli leaders. Um, and, and so given the, the openly declared intent right coupled with what's actually happened on the ground where you can see that that is what actually has been put into operational execution 
on the ground. I mean, I, I don't see how you could possibly argue that it doesn't meet the definition of genocide under international law. I, I don't know how you could defend against that. And I think Israel realizes it can't defend against it. Um, and it also, so this puts, this does a number of things. Number one, it puts pressure on the Israeli government. Um, it puts pressure on the International Criminal Court, the ICC, which is a separate body um, in The Hague. Um, which So the ICJ makes legal determinations, essentially. The International Court of Justice, sometimes mm -hmm. known as the World Court, um, it issues advisory opinions. It basically makes legal determinations. Um, it's basically the highest authority in the world in terms of what, how do we interpret international law? What does international law allow and what does it prohibit? That's the ICJ. Um, another relevant um, court decision, it was in 2004, the ICJ issued a ruling at the request of the General Assembly of the UN, um, determining that the the wall, that, that the annexation wall, essentially that Israel was building in, in the West Bank was illegal. Uh, along with the settlement regime is a violation of international law. So that was the two, that was the ICJ in 2004. Um, and so this also puts pressure on the ICC, which is, again, a separate body, which actually prosecutes. It has the authority to prosecute um, individuals, high-level officials um, that, that perpetrate war crimes. And so this puts pressure on the IC, ICC, to right. advance its investigation, it does have an open investigation um, since 2014 into war crimes committed by both by Palestinian armed groups, including Hamas and the Israeli government. And so this puts pressure, additional pressure on the ICC to move forward with investigating the, the genocide in Gaza. Um, it also, of course, puts pressure on the U.S. government to put pressure right. on the Israeli government to start winding things up, um, wrapping it up and, and, and ending this because it just, it, the slaughter just can't go on. And it, it's putting the U.S. in a dangerous position because the U.S. itself is in violation of the Genocide Convention. This is important because the U.S. itself is violating the Genocide Convention because the, the Genocide Convention actually, um, to which the U.S. is a party and Israel is a party, um, it, it it places an obligation on on parties to the convention to prevent the crime of genocide. And here you have a situation, not only is the U.S. not prevented it, it has facilitated it. It has been absolutely complicit in Israel's perpetration of this genocide. So you have a situation where Biden and top U.S. government officials could be prosecuted for the crime of genocide. Man. Now, whether or not that's going to happen. So say we all. I would be skeptical it might go that far. Sure. But certainly, um, but it, certainly it, 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 it could happen. It, or, or it, 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 it um, strengthens the point that you made earlier, that the reason why Israel doesn't level Gaza today is there is certain amount of political pressure that disallows them, them to do it. And the more pressure, whether that's internationally through South Africa and the UN courts or, or um, um, here, you know, it, it, and, and this is kind of how I think of it, man. If one or two people who watch the, the, the discussion that we're having today changes their mind or decides to look into or rethinks that as I did recently, rethink their position on Israel and, 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 
even that kind of pressure, um, you know, from from a, gra- a grassroots level, it, you know, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. And so, I, again, I totally commend the work that you're doing and, and appreciate it, man. It's well, it, it makes a difference. It's, it's incredibly important because if you think about it, what needs to happen if there is, if there is going to be a just peace at some point in the future where you know, there's peaceful coexistence in, in, in the Middle East between uh, Jew, the Jewish people of Israel and the Arab people of Palestine, um, it's going to require as a first step an end to U.S. government support for Israel's crimes against Palestinians. As long as the U.S. government support for this persists, no, there, there's just no possibility for a peaceful resolution. It's just not possible. It's not logical possible possibility. And so U.S. government support must end. That's a first step. So how do we get there? And, you know, once that happens, then we can talk about, okay, where do we go next? Exactly. What, what has to happen next? But it's kind of pointless to even have that kind of theoretical academic discussion as long as the U.S. government support continues. And, and that so only who happens is it up to for right. this to end? Who is it up to? It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to us. Um, and so it's incredibly important for people to become educated about this topic, to to learn to recognize what's true, what's not, what's propaganda, what's real, what's historically factual, and what's historical myth and, and propagandist, propagandistic lies. Um, and then and, and, and to, to speak out because it's up to us to really, we have, there has to be a paradigm shift mm-hmm. where it becomes politically infeasible for the U.S. government to continue its policy. And that's up to us. I mean, there's nobody else is going to do that. It's up to us to achieve that. Um, and so, yeah, what you said is incredibly important. It, it, like, yeah, if just one or two people have a, a, a change of thinking and kind of have that paradigm shift as a result, well, that's something. That's an achievement. Yeah. And we can all we can all work toward in in whatever you know. I I have certain skills and talents that I try to put to use. Other people have different skills and talents, and so, but you know, as long as we're each applying our own unique abilities and insights and whatever it might be toward, you know, towards the goal of liberty, justice, equality. That's right. You know, the the idea that you have this Jewish supremacist state. Openly. Yes, openly. I'm happy to be called a fascist. No, no, because, uh, you know, openly, because we were talking about, you know, nation states and the whole problem with the, the, the institution of statehood earlier. In our discussion. So let's bring it back to that. You have what's called the Jewish nation state law. I think it was 2019 became part of the basic law, which is Israel doesn't have a constitution, but it has what's called basic law. Okay. Um, so the Jewish nation state law literally defines, it says that the, the right to self-determination in the territory under Israel's control, which of course includes the West Bank and Gaza, Although Israel hasn't officially annexed those territories, but Israel, and this is why it's been called an apartheid state by Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, Israeli uh, human rights organizations like Betzalem and Gisha, um, UN agencies, UN reports, investigations. They're all calling it an apartheid regime precisely because this this fiction of a, of an independent state of Palestine, it, it, it doesn't exist because Israel controls all of the territory between the, the river and the sea. And so it's it's a this apartheid regime. So the Jewish nation state law defines the that the the right to self determination is an exclusive right of Jews in Israel. An exclusive right of Jews. So it's an openly Jewish supremacist state. Yeah, openly. 
unabashedly, uh, and unashamedly. And so is this something like, you know, we live in the 21st century. We're supposed to be civilized, right? And yet you have people like ardently supporting this Jew, this supremacist state that exists because of ethnic cleansing that that has continued in it, the entire 75 years of his existence has per- persisted and perpetually violating, sy- systematically violating the human rights, the fundamental human rights of the Palestinian people. How can this go on? We're supposed right. to be civilized. So unless people awaken to the reality that like this state is really not like it's not, I mean, people have this kind of like religious devotion to the idea of Israel as a state and people have to get past that. Right. You know, I, I, again, I was raised Christian. Like I grew up in an environment of like, like being hearing all the time, like U.S. must support Israel no matter what. Because there's this belief that the, that the creation of Israel was like this fulfillment of prophecy. But you look at what Zionists were saying. I mean, sorry, not Zionists, but you look at what like, like Orthodox Jews thought about Zionism when it was, you know, when it came into inception. They were against it. Why? Because they saw it as heretical. They saw it as heretical because they believed that, you know, they were supposed to await the Messiah. Because, of course, you know, Orthodox Jews don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah like Christians do. This is the right. fundamental division between Christians and Jews, that Jews don't recognize Jesus, Yeshua. They don't believe he was, they don't re- recognize Yeshua as Hamashiach, the, the Messiah, the, the, the Messiah, Christ. Yeah, the chosen one. Yeah, the... And so um, they, they, they're still awaiting the prophesied Messiah. And so the Orthodox Jews at the time looked at Zionism and they thought it was heretical because it was it was a, a movement of secular, it was a secular political movement, an act by rebellious men to defy God's will and try to reestablish the state of Israel on their own without right. God and without awaiting the Messiah. It's so a it was tower, totally heretical. It's a to Tower of Babel people. situation. Like we're we're not we're gonna we're not gonna allow we're not gonna have faith that God is going to you know allow this to happen. We are gonna take it upon ourselves. Um, I mean, it's it is anybody who reads the Tower of Babel. That's what that's about. It's the hubris of man overstepping the will of God. And, yeah, and you know, with among Christian Zionists, you always hear, "Well, God gave the land to to the Jews in the in the Bible. God gave the land to the Hebrews." Yeah. Of course. The tribe of Israel, there was one of the 12 tribes was the tribe of, of Judah, which is where Jews come from. The, the word Jew comes from the, the name of the tribe of Judah. Right. Um, so they were Judeans. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's really like if you read the Bible, at one point in my life, I, I actually like I just sat down and I read the Bible from cover to cover because, you know, in church, you'd growing up, you go to Sunday school and things and you're always take, taking these little excerpts and they have some some sermon about this little excerpt. And it's all out of context and there's just like no context, but like, I just, I, I just cover to cover, yeah. just read it cover to cover. It's really hard to miss this, this whole idea of the, 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 you know, what Christians refer to as the old covenant in the, in the Hebrew Tanakh, which is the, the old Testament. Um, it's really hard to miss the central theme of how God establishes covenant with the Israelites and how they repeatedly throughout all their generations violated the covenant. Right. So that's what the whole Old Testament is a story and, about. And the whole idea that that land is tied to Israel is 100% um, it, it, that covenant 
is is predicated on their obedience. And right. until they're obedient, right. they don't receive the blessings of that covenant. And, and I don't think obedience is, you know, ethically cleansing a people off their land. I mean, I, ju- I just don't find that in the Ten Commandments. Precisely. Um, and, and you read, you know, when um, the... The, the the kingdom of Israel in the Bible, again, we're not talking about archaeology here, but, you know, the, the kind of the fabled kingdom, united kingdom of, of, of Israel was yeah. divided into two. And you had um, Israel in the north and then um, Judah. Judea, the kingdom of Judah in, yeah. in the south, which was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, you know, and the, the other 10 tribes were in the north. And then the, um, the there was the Assyrian exile where the, the Assyrian empire conquered that northern kingdom. And yeah. you know, we read about, you know, in the prophet, in the prophets, um, how that's described in the Bible. It's like, well, God, God issued a certificate of divorce with the kingdom right. of Israel for their sins. Right. That's how it's described by the, in the prophets. And by the way, and if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you know, like that new, that, that becomes a new covenant and a new um, marriage with Christ as the husband and with, um, yes. you know, and, and all those blessings have, have flow into those who believe. Right. Yeah. The idea that the a literal, you know, geographic right. territory a state known as Israel, like, like that's the fulfillment of prophecy is, is really antithetical to the entire concept of the new Testament, yeah. the new covenant. Um, but yeah, you still have Christian Zionists believing this, you know, and, and, and then the same thing happened with, with Judah um, the Southern Kingdom with the Babylonian exile, where you can read again in the in the books of the prophets how that's described as well. You were repeatedly warned that the land is going to vomit you out, and I'm going to hand it over to your enemies if you if you continue to violate my laws, yeah, and violate the covenant. And so, like, I don't know how Christians miss that part of the Bible. Like, I just don't know. I don't. I don't get it. Um, well, anyway, by the way, I think that's a new. Being, I think that's a new here, phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't mean to offend anyone who has religious beliefs. I'm just saying like, okay, well, if, if we're going to look at this like from a biblical point of view, right. from a religious point of view, if we're going to do that, well, then let's be honest about what the Bible says, first yeah. of all, as a starting point, okay? And so and the, the point I'm making is that, so there's this really intense, um, it's that wall I was talking about when I was trying to, 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 to you know, uh, uh, speak out against the Iraq war, the forthcoming right. war in Iraq and how people, it didn't, what I was saying didn't conform with their belief system in how they believed that the U.S. government would never lie to, to start a war. They just couldn't come to accept that that could be true. It, it just didn't conform with their belief about what the, the nature of the U.S. government. And so it, what I'm saying is, I get the point I'm, I'm getting at is that we, we have confirmation bias is that we need to overcome. And so I guess I'm, you know, there are many people who kind of have a religious fervor in their devotion to the state of Israel, but, you know, I don't consider myself, of course, I'm called anti-Israel for criticizing the government of Israel, just like I'm, I've been accused of, stupidly accused of anti-Semitism for criticizing the state of Israel. But I don't consider my position to be anti-Israel at all. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, the, the, the writings that I, I, I have when I speak out in favor of peace and an end to violence, I, and I'm not, I'm not, it's, it's yes, it's pro-Palestinian, in the sense that I, I am an advocate of Palestinians' fundamental human rights, but I'm also an advocate of the equal fundamental human rights right. of, of pe- the people living in Israel and of Jews. So I'm I, I just advocating equality here. So it's not about being pro-Israel or pro-Palestinian. It's about being pro-humanity 
and pro-human rights. And it's just that simple. And if we can overcome our prejudices and biases and just take a, 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 a sober, um, honest look at the situation, I mean, it, so if you are religious, if you, you know, if you, if you consider yourself a Christian, well, okay, what did Jesus teach? You know, and how do we just apply those teachings to the situations? And I can, I can, you know, you could try to argue this point with me, but I don't see how it would be that if Jesus were here with us on earth today, that he'd be supporting this. He'd be, oh. that he would be supporting what Israel has been doing to the Palestinians because it's completely contrary to his teachings. And so to all the people who are listening and were watching this, um, who have those kind of the, the pre conceived beliefs about what Israel is and the nature of the Israeli state that might be tied to religious beliefs and things. I think it's just time to do a, 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 re- a reassessment and a reevaluation um, and, and to really take a hard look because we, we have to affect that paradigm shift because uh, and Christian Zionism, I think is the biggest reason we can talk about the Israel lobby and its influence, but the bigger influence in my, in my assessment is Absolutely. the, is Christian Zionism. Oh, that's so the leverage. That's the, obstacle that's the leverage. <laughs> and and that's I the think, obstacle. Yeah. And, and, and I think anybody, any Christian from any denomination, um, from, from, you know, Catholicism to, to, um, Baptist to, um, LDS to anybody who, who proclaims uh, Jesus as their Lord and as, as Christ, there are lots and lots and lots of examples of people in your community and people, um, that you would see as authority figures in your community that are um, that would accept the premise, shall we say, um, that uh, that what is happening to the Palestinian people is not right, and that Israel, um, or, or and that Israel is not the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Let me just say it that way. Um, you can find lots of examples. So, I, so if you the, just the look, the Pope has described Israel's yeah. operation as terrorism. Yeah. Okay. It's it's okay to criticize. It's okay the crimes <laughs> right. of the Israeli government. Yep. You know what? And you've been, Jeremy. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and I and sincerely, I really appreciate the time. Um, I have just one more kind of question. I want to, um, if you don't mind. I want to take just a, maybe a step up a, um, a level, take a kind of big picture view. We're, we're here in the beginning of 2024. We've gone through some crazy times. 2023 was a wild time. And I don't mean specifically from January 1 to December 31st, but kind of that like the, um, the Monet of the year, <laughs> if you will, has been, has, been, has been wild from the end of COVID to Ukraine to, to what's happening now to an election that's coming up. Um, can you take a, a step back and from your perspective, what are some of the lessons or wonder, what are some of the things that, that you've learned that the, or that we've learned um, that we can kind of take into this, this new year? What, maybe give us some thoughts on that as we finish up. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the lesson of COVID is this, it's very similar to the lesson of, of Iraq. <clears throat> the government lies <laughs> and it yeah. lies to advance agendas that have nothing to do with the pretext. So we have with, with, with the COVID lockdowns, which were completely unscientific. Of course, they, they'd like to declare that they were following the science. That was a lie. Uh, and, and of course, the, the proclaimed benefits of the lockdown regimes um, never manifested in the data. And it was also 
um, very patently true that the end game of the lockdowns was coerced mass vaccination. This was apparent from the very beginning of the lockdowns. You can go back to the Imperial College um, model report that they put out in mid-March that the UK government and the US government and other governments around the world cited as the essentially their justification for implementing these lockdown policies. And they, they said right in there, contrary to how the media reported it, that it was just two weeks to flatten the curve that wasn't that wasn't what that model called for at all. It wasn't two two weeks to flatten the curve. It was it was um, continued lockdown um, measures um, until a, a, a vaccine could be developed and rolled out, and mass manufactured and rolled out. And then, of course, the the logical corollary of that would be that um, people would need to be coerced into getting the vaccine if they weren't willing to do it voluntarily and freely. Which, of course. We're talking about an experimental vaccine here. Um, and people remember uh, until August 2020, uh, 2021, the vaccines were being administered under emergency use authorization, which is a, a status, a category uh, for under the FDA regulatory apparatus for experimental investigational products. Um, they were experimental vaccines. Um, and, and then you can make the argument that after the FDA approved them in August, of, I think it was, I believe it was August of 2021 before the first, where for Pfizer received the first actual approval. Right. Licensure. But even then, they, they even then, I mean, you they can, were still operating under the same emergency. Am I right about that? Like they, well, they were st- it was still an experimental vaccine by virtue yeah. of the fact that, that the trials were essentially ended. So you had the, the original trials. Where you had the the experimental group who got the vaccine and the placebo, the placebo control group <laughs> that got a that got a placebo shot. Well, that was ended after emergency use use authorization right. was granted because the placebo group was vaccinated away. And so we never we never had data on what the long term um, effects of these vaccines were. We never that data doesn't exist. Um, and so. So essentially, the, the experiment moved out of the clinical trials into the population. And so the entire population became subjects of a mass uncontrolled experiment without properly informed consent. That's what happened. That's the lesson. And, um, and fortunately, you know, there has been a great awakening in, in terms of more people now recognize that the CDC is not a trustworthy agency. Because pre-COVID, I mean, if you if you t- if you criticize public vaccine policy, it's oh, like yeah. some you are some kind of conspiracy theorist or something, right? You know, yeah. like you must be wearing a tinfoil hat kind of thing to be <laughs> criticizing vaccine policy. It was What's basically a UNRFK. <laughs> yeah, and it, it. But now, I mean, but it, it, so this is a huge shift where it became like mainstream part of the mainstream discourse the lack of trustworthiness of the CDC became part of the mainstream discourse. That's a, that was a huge change. You had changes where, you know, suddenly like concepts like natural herd immunity um, uh, became part of the mainstream discourse. You know, there was all kinds of shifts um, in just public knowledge, the idea of cellular immunity as opposed to humoral immunity, which is the antibody response, but you also have T cells. 
Right. Right. And suddenly, suddenly after the vaccines, after the vaccines were sold to people on the basis of the lie that two doses of an mRNA vaccine were going to confer durable sterilizing immunity and end the pandemic by conferring herd immunity, by ending, by ending, um, by preventing uh, infection and transmission. It was all a lie. None of that was scientifically accurate information, but that's how they were sold to the public. Biden said it. The head of the CDC said it. Um, you know, Fauci said it. Uh, uh, Deborah Burks said it. They were all claiming that that's that was the effectiveness of the vaccines. That's what they were going to do. That that and the, so two doses would that would be a pandemic over right. once we get reach a high enough oh. vaccination rate. That was the claim. That was the claim. Then they tried to gaslight us and and convince us that that never happened. They never made those claims. I mean, it's just absurd, the the level of gaslighting we've been through. But this is the lesson for anyone who just has any kind of, I don't know, uh, honesty with themselves. That's what happened. The government lied um, to try to get people to accept the vaccines. And when, when that didn't work, they relied on coercion um, with attempted mandates uh, you know, the, the whole lockdown regime itself became the tool, like, well, we can end the lockdowns once you're all vaccinated. So go get your shots so we can stop these lockdown measures. That was always explicit here in Michigan. That was an explicit policy. Yeah, absolutely. The governor. Um, and so it was, it was the lockdown madness always had coerced mass vaccination as its end game. Um, and the, people just need to just take a step in a, a take a step back and just for a moment, just think about that for a second, because you have a situation where they were, they were purporting to act in the interest of public health. And, and this is, and I'm not just talking about the CDC and the FDA and just the government agencies. I'm talking about the entire public health establishment. And when I say public health establishment, I'm talking about the insurance companies, the healthcare providers, right? probably your doctor, if you're listening yep. to this, you know what I mean? Like they were all in on this huge deception. Everyone. Right. They're yep. all lying. The entire public health establishment lied. Yeah. So who do they serve? They're not serving us. So I think this is the realization that people need to come to. And, and the CDC doesn't need to be reformed. It doesn't need to be given more money. It needs to be eliminated. Yep. We, would be, we would be better off. I'm going to make a proposition. I posit that we would be better off without the CDC. I posit that we would be better off without the FDA. I posit that we would be better off without the USDA. You know, all of these government agencies, they don't exist for the purpose of looking out for our interests. Yeah. They serve big industries and, and, and private corporate interests. And so we need a system that, that does serve our interests. And guess what that's called? It's called a free market. But we don't have anything resembling a free market, and that's the problem. And worst of all, in the in the, in the health sector, I mean, yes, and and the, the the level of medical tyranny that we that we witness, you know, I mean, case after case, I know people who were like forcibly vaccinated, like they got the vaccine against their will because they were forced to to keep their jobs. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and, and by the way, the stories, I, I think also, you know, you saw the pattern of, um, you know, how how you know. How this control was implemented, it wasn't by, it was never by law. It was by decree at best. It was by policy most of the time. Executive orders. By executive orders. And it was, and it was um, enforced 
by the exact same police that so that that you know uh, that we pay to protect our rights. And it's just it, it, it is it was such a clear opening of like wait a sec, you know these people maybe your f- neighbors and friends, but they're serving as you said they're serving the interests of not you. <laughs> And right. And it, so I think that's that's the big lesson uh, yeah. from the whole COVID insanity. Um, and, yeah, you know, and I think you look at the, the deaths, I think a lot of the deaths are, you know, this gets into a, a big deep discussion that we probably don't have time for today. Right, <laughs> Just right. to touch on it, you know, the lockdowns themselves um, caused massive deaths and the, the treatments, you know, the, the, the ventilators that they were, that people were put on, it wasn't the proper treatment and that killed a lot of people. Um, we don't know the, the vaccines death toll because we just don't have the data. Um, but you know, you have to consider that, um, all vaccines, regardless, there's something called non-specific effects. So vaccines can have what are called specific effects, meaning, okay, so you get a measles vaccine and it, prevents measles. So that's the specific intended effect of the vaccine, but vaccines can have uh, non-specific effects. And a good example is the DTP vaccine, um, which all the, all the studies show actually uh, results in an increased rate of childhood mortality. Um, and so we don't have data on, again, the, we don't have data on the long-term uh, uh, effects on mortality of these vaccines. We can look at the question of whether they prevent COVID or not. That's one question. And that's what all the studies look at. Right. You know, what's, you know, the comparing. And they're dubious at best. And, and it is observational data, not, not yeah. randomized controlled trials. But, you know, they have, obs- they, because they moved the, the trials, we, the, the, the population became the trial subjects. Yeah. So they only have observational data to rely on, which is notoriously um, bad for this purpose because of the, all the possibilities of selection biases, which we could get into. Um, including one called healthy user bias or healthy vaccinee bias. Um, um, <clears throat> but essentially you have a situation where, you know, the, the population became the guinea pigs uh, and we don't have data. You, you can look at, they have observational data looking at the vaccine's effect on COVID mortality, but that's not what we need to be asking. We need to be asking what's their effect on all cause mortality. Right. And we don't have that data. Right. So we don't know. And, and, and everything like, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, circumstances or stories. We hear stories of, of, you know, uh, grown men dying in the soccer field and young men having myocarditis and all these things. But, but because of how, how it happened, there is always going to be plausible deniability and, and, and you and I, and those who fought from the beginning or, or who have come around are going to be called conspiracy theorists. And you just want grandma and grandpa to die. Um, when the fact is it was, it was purposely, it was purposely done so that we would not know what the, the problems were with these vaccines. Well, and, and excess mortality, if you look at the data on excess mortality, which is just yeah. the, the, the amount of deaths kind of above yeah. the, the, the anticipated numbers, <laughs> essentially based on, you know, historical data from prior years, um, so excess deaths have continued and it's not attributable to COVID. No. But there's still a problem, still still a problem oh, of excess deaths. All you deaths. have to do is look at insurance actuary tables. Those that they, they came out, what, 
four months ago, the new insurance actuary tables for, I can't remember which company, but they came out and they absolutely showed an excess death among young men. They absolutely showed, um, you know, an, an, an increase of, uh, of problems in, in um, young women. I mean, these are just when, when money's on the line and, you know, as far as insurance, you can, I think those are the type of things that, that you can trust. You may not be able to specifically point it to the vaccine, but you can mm-hmm. say there's a problem. Yeah. And another example of one of the many lies that were told, I mean, there's the big lie about the effectiveness of the vaccines. Right. Um, but then there's all kinds of um, other lies, you know, the, the lie that um, whether we were told that the, the claim was that uh, there's no, possibility of, of the vaccine mRNA integrating into human DNA, right? Um, which was a, a non sequitur fallacy. Uh-huh. I won't say it's a lie, but it was a non sequitur fallacy. It's, it, it, um, the, it was a conclusion that didn't follow from the premise because there's a known phenomenon called reverse transcription by which mRNA is converted into DNA. And then that DNA can potentially enter the cell nucleus and become integrated with the host DNA. Right. This is known. It's a known phenomenon. And in fact, um, a considerable amount of our own human DNA is viral in origin precisely because of this phenomenon, this known phenomenon of reverse transcription. Um, And so it was a, it was a logical fallacy and um, kind of more recently, uh, well, it's not recent now, but it's for some time it's been known that there's DNA contamination in the vaccines. So from the manufacturing process, so it isn't even needed now for reverse transcription to occur because there is the the the, the um, plasma DNA is contaminating the vaccines, and you have um, you know experts in the area of um, like cancer genomics and things like this. There was a guy who um, testified, an expert, I think he was a cancer genomics expert who testified. I believe it was the um, Senate of South Carolina. I don't remember which state, um, but but saying yeah, you know, like I've confirmed. I've confirmed this this report. Like I, I checked myself, and yes, the DNA is there. It's contaminating the vaccines, and yes, this is a major concern. There's concerns about, you know, mutagenicity, carcinogenicity. Yeah. Well, and, um, and I don't potential I, for cancer causing, you know, as a result of of potential genomic integration. Um, you have studies looking at um the the persistence of spike proteins. Who's of yeah, course remember. The, the, vac- the mechanism by which the vaccines work, the mRNA enters the cells because it's encapsulated in the ni- lipid nanoparticle so it doesn't get broken down. Right. That's the purpose of the lipid nanoparticle. So it makes sure the mRNA doesn't get broken down before it can enter the cells to do its thing. So it enters the cells. It causes your cells to become factories to produce the spike protein of the, the original Wuhan strain of the, of the spike protein. Um, the spike protein of the original Wuhan strain, which of course was long extinct. Um, and so you have uh, studies showing persistence of spike protein in vaccinated people. At, t- at, at, the, at the longest time point I've seen was at, at six months later. When we were told, what we were told is that the mRNA breaks down within days and the spike protein would also just disappear from the body. It would be eliminated at maybe within a few weeks. Right. But at six months post-vaccination, people are still, uh, still have spike protein. And I will and, say, and I, so scientists looked at the question, like, why would that be? And and yeah, yeah. and, and the, the 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 conclusion that they they tended towards was it, genomic genomic integration, that the mRNA integrated with the DNA, and so the cells mm-hmm. are continuing to produce spike protein. Right. 
Wow. And, and what, what makes, and to me that reinforces, you know, kind of what we see, what we observe where we're, you know, we're seeing different ailments and different people that doesn't really make sense. In other words, I mean, I'm going to put it as, as kind of baseline as I can. It seems as if the spike protein or, or whatever is causing the harm, the damage, because that's what it does. It causes damage in the cell that allows the cell to create the, the, the cells necessary to fight off the disease. Well, if it's too persistent, it's going to go find the weakest cell. And if your weakest cell happens to be your heart, you're going to get myocarditis. If your weakest cell happens to be your ovaries, then you're going to have uh, reproductive problems. And I think, I mean, this is, I'm not sure if there's been a study on this, but I, but to me that, that makes sense of the, of how that problem can lead to the really diverse and strange problems that we're seeing. Yeah, in people. Because the spike protein is distributed throughout the body and the spike yes. protein by itself without the whole virus, just the spike protein is, is known since early on to be itself toxic. It is itself pathogenic by itself without the whole virus, just the spike protein is pathogenic. And, and this has been known. And of course, you know, you read the propaganda from the, the, the state health departments and the CDC. Well, the spike protein is this harmless protein harmless they call it and that's a lie they've known that. That, that that's just another deliberate lie i mean you can go into the literature and read about how the spike protein on its own by itself is is pathogenic um and causes problems uh and this is this because you have immune reactions to it partly uh, for this reason um and so when it when it migrates into organs and you have immune attacks on your own cells for example I mean, this, this is this is the hypothesis for why the myocarditis occurs. You know, there are known consequences, heart-related, um, to, to to the vaccines that is admitted that's uncontroversial. But you have all kinds of other possible biological effects that they just kind of write off and dismiss. But the biological plausibility is there, and of course, we just you know, the data again, without having like randomized placebo controlled trials to actually determine what the long-term effects are, you know, just the plausible deniability, because it's just very, very hard to try to establish um, long-term effects, you know, years afterward, um, if if, years, if not months, you know, afterwards. Um, but but increasingly the biological mechanisms are being shown like the biological mechanisms for uh, genomic integration ha- have been established at this point um, without the need even for reverse transcription of mRNA into DNA. Yeah. So when we were getting recoded, we were di- it was being done from the start, <laughs> man. Yeah. Jeremy, listen, man, you have been again, super generous. And, and by the way, Please come on again because this is uh, this has been a lot of fun for me, and um, I've learned a lot. I, I, fun is a weird word, I know from this, from the topics we've discussed, but but I've enjoyed the conversation tremendously. Same, yeah. I, I, I second for a second time now, Mike. I've, I've appreciated our, our discussion, and uh, I also enjoy speaking with you. I'd be happy to come back on and continue. Oh. Continue our chat because yes, there's, I, there's lots to talk about. How what's the best way if people want to support you? How how would you like them to do that? Head to uh, my website, so jeremyrhammond.com, and while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. Just to make sure you stay updated with my work. Um, and yeah, I I I'm completely reader funded. Uh, I'm totally independent. 
um, the work I do, nobody pays me to do it. I don't have a wage or a salary. Uh, so I, I rely on, on my readers to support me. And so there's a, there's a donate button there. You can head to my donation page. Um, if you want to, if you want to financially contribute to the work that I do, it's there. Um, but certainly at least, uh, get on my, my mailing list and sign up, sign up for my, news, my newsletter, to be able to um, stay updated with my stuff. Fantastic. Jeremy Hammond. Thanks for being on and of love remains. Mike is gone. You are listening to And If Love Remains. Gone, but not forgotten. First of 23 installments by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization. Out.